Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, a podcast devoted to our favorite pop culture from our formative years, and possibly yours too, taking us back to roughly the years 1980 to 2000. In every episode, we take a look at a piece of pop culture from the past, sharing what it meant to us then, and then debating whether or not it still holds up. Through movies, music, TV, and more, it's all fair game. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to be found wearing a t-shirt and no pants while doing a spot-on impression of Burt Lars Cowardly Lion. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Becky. I'm just a single mother who wants to save her mouse child from pneumonia. And I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to have always wanted a sparkly of my very own. (laughs) All right. Well, this week's episode is all about a super talented guy who created an animated mouse that you know and love. No, not that guy, and not that mouse. Wait, who, who do you mean? <laughs> oh, well, you know. I had a set of expectations, and you just walked in the room and flipped over the table containing my expectations. I tricked you guys. I did it. Oh. No, we are talking about that other cartoon mouse, Maestro Don Bluth, who brought us such beloved rodents as Fievel and Mrs. Brisby, as well as dead dogs, dead parents, and a dead Russian whose corpse is still causing mayhem. Because there's actually a lot of death in Don Bluth movies, <laughs> as we discovered over yeah, the last uh, couple of weeks. It got dark. It did. So we will definitely talk about that, as well as the other D word that is unavoidable when talking about animated classics from our childhood. Dong. Nope. That's not the one. Debt. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we're just going to keep... Let's just fast forward to the part where... <laughs> Uh, we don't keep naming D words. Defecation? We will have to go into Seth's childhood <laughs> trauma at a later date, but, you know, that'll be a very special episode. I've got some stuff to work out, guys. So since Don Bluth's work is largely about domesticated animals like dogs and cats and mice. And, and orphans. And triceratops, yes. All of those things. Um, I thought it would be fun to ask, um, did you guys have pets when you were young? That's the title of our podcast. I did. I had a. <laughs> just shortened. I I had an Akita named Kisco, um, and he wasn't Are those very words. <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad had a restaurant called Mount Kisco Kosher. Mm-hmm. Mount Kisco is a town in New York. I have actually been to that restaurant. Yes, you've had the matzo ball soup. I had all of the food. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and each. we named our dog Kisco, um, and he wasn't very friendly, and I was always <laughs> terrified of him. Um, uh, and he always was at the foot of the stairs and anytime I would get a little too close, he would bark his head off at me. So that was my childhood. (laughs) And then when he died, we got another Akita. Um, it was an Akita mix named Kosher (laughs) and he actually bit my sister and her friend and he was put down. So thanks for bringing all these (laughs) (laughs) horrible memories, Chris. Kosher the dead dog. (laughs) Um, I have a dog now who I love and is the friendliest, but I did not really like dogs growing up. Because of the aforementioned You can stories. read all of the detailed stories of this in Becky's book, My Dogs Went to Hell. <laughs> but thankfully, her current dog is indeed the best. I can confirm this. Um, I grew up, uh, I had dogs the entirety of my childhood. Um, speci- specifically, I had Yorkshire Terriers. Uh, for whatever reason, just in in my family, especially on my dad's side of the family, Your, everyone Yorkshire loved Terriers Yorkies. Are the what do they look like? They're the ones who look like tiny Ewoks. <laughs> there you mm, go. Okay, yeah. they are the tiny Ewok dog. God loves a terrier. I hear. Speaking of like religious themes and canines. Exactly. They are the best in show. Even in their own minds, <laughs> those dogs are some of the most diva esque ever. 
just part of their charm for me. Um, but yeah, I definitely just had dogs in my life. I was more of a cat person because that's what my parents would buy me. So we had a cat named Abby was our first. She was a Siamese. That's the only cat I know. Yeah. And if you don't, please. I think yeah. it's the only cat I know. And then we had a cat named Cricket for a brief time. She had one blue eye and one green eye. She was white and Just deaf. Like a cricket. She was deaf and she huh? liked to pee all over the house. So oh. I believe we found a new home for her. Although like when I was thinking about that today, I was like, mm, that possibly was just a little story I was told. So I'm not sure. They killed her. She went to heaven. To, all cats? We found they go a to new heaven? home oh, yeah. for the where's dog. The, where's the sequel? All cats go to purgatory. <laughs> all cats are atheists. <laughs> Most cats go to limbo. <laughs> they try Blue, to right the wrongs. If that you're listening, we have... Great ideas for you. Is and Don would... still alive? Did we check? Oh, um, yes, he is oh, still alive. Oh, he's still alive. Okay. Thank goodness. Still ticking. Okay, so as we mentioned, we tend to discuss uh, movies, albums, TV shows, and so on. And sometimes we like to do a person. And that person, <laughs> our first person, is Don Bluth. Um, so we're looking back at his career basically from 1982 to 2000, which is basically exactly the years that we cover on our podcast. So thanks, Don Bluth, for sticking yeah. right in those years now, for us. Now, Chris, did he have movies past 2000, or that was just kind of his no, like uh, peak period? That was His last movie was in 2000, which was Titan A. Oh. Yes. And the first one was 82. That was The Secret of Nim. And we'll also be covering hmm. Land Before Time, American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven, as we've... <laughs> Discussed much already, and uh, we'll talk a bit, little bit about Titan E as well. And Anastasia. Ah, I forgot about Anastasia. As don't you forget about Anastasia? As, as easy to do. Did right you get right. Did you get amnesia? <laughs> much like Anastasia. I did. Did you I, get Anastasia? <laughs> I, I sometimes forget that I'm really a princess. It I just, don't it, believe it, that it at all. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's true. I think <laughs> that's that you... not true. <laughs> I don't think she really forgot either. But yeah, we'll we'll get there. So, uh, interesting fact, the first five of his movies were all released in the month of November. So, like, because this episode is being released in November, you know, where it's a very Don Bluthy kind of month, apparently. And the day that this podcast is released is the 30th anniversary of An American Tale, November 21st. So Synergy. I am so old. I know. <laughs> that, yeah. that movie you has are, been out 30 you really are. goddamn years. Do you need to go lie down? Are you okay? <laughs> like, do. You need, I need to Becky's go tired from Becky needs speaking. a nap already. <laughs> so, and as we just mentioned, Don Bluth is not dead. You may have thought he was dead. Because, <laughs> because his movies just stopped. Yeah, he stopped working. Uh, working on movies, at least animated features, in 2000. So, I, yeah, I had kind of just assumed that he had passed away at some point in there. I actually didn't even know Titan AE was one of his movies until we started looking into this podcast. But, yes, I had assumed that he was dead. He is not dead. So, uh, do you sorry. Know, do you know why he? what happened there? Like, what compelled him to just stop? Oh, you have theories, We're gonna but get nothing there. concrete. Okay. We're going to go through the, uh, through the mythology. conspiracy theories? Um, and I also would like to shout out to his uh, producing partner, Gary Goldman, because he worked on all of the movies that Don Bluth has worked on. Uh, he co-directed... G. Gold! Yeah, Gary Goldman. Uh, some of the... Uh, he co-directed um, All Dogs and like subsequent films. And it was also an animator. So he's basically just as... Uh, influential as Don Bluth, but for some reason we think of them as Don Bluth movies, so 
sorry, Gary, that we're just doing a Don Bluth episode and not also a Gary Goldman episode. But Sorry, not sorry. We're only mentioning you to bury your name, Gary Goldman. So, guys, what did we all <laughs> think of Don Bluth when we were young? <laughs> That's our name of our podcast. He just looked right at the camera that isn't here. Yep, and I winked, I winked at the microphone. You guys, these recording sessions basically consist of Chris just winking at microphones. There's just something really in my annoying. eye. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, like most kids, I watched, you know, um, all these movies for the most part, at least The Secret of Nim and American Tale, Land Before Time. I mean, I watched them over and over. Um, I think that I got into them because they had tie-ins with like Burger King. <laughs> yeah, I was actually gonna say <laughs> and that too. I played with all the toys. I had Littlefoot toys. I specifically like remember my um, Charlie the dog and the little orphan girl, Anne Marie. I had the little orphan girl too. Yeah, I played with, I, and they all played together. Like, I wonder, how much I actually liked these movies <laughs> looking back um, versus <laughs> I liked playing with these toys. Yeah. Um, so you're very smart marketing team. <laughs> uh, because well done, yes. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I watched all these movies. I had them on VHS because I think also back in the day they sold VHSs like at fast food uh, restaurants. Mm. I remember oh, yeah. buying a lot of VHS tapes um, at like McDonald's and Burger King. That was like a weird thing. Even at gas stations then. too, yeah. Yeah, but like specifically, like Burger King and McDonald's, like would hmm. sell VHS tapes. Like mm-hmm. that's how I bought the Adams Family. That's how I bought Batman. I'm pretty oh, sure I bought. I remember um, them selling. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty Adam's sure family. I bought um, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven and um, An American Tale and Land Before Time, like at well, picking up French fries and like a Happy Meal or Kids Meal or whatever. That's weird. I bought Schindler's List at a Burger King, <laughs> but that was just that. You know, that was just, and that was just that one Burger King. You just, you just met somebody covertly. Yeah, more like a Cheesecake Factory movie. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I, you know, I watched the movies and and liked them a lot and rewatched them and probably drove my mom crazy. <laughs> um. But I'm. I'll get to how I feel about it in a, in a little bit when we cover that, but I was surprised how much I didn't really remember a lot. Mm. Like, I don't think they stuck with me in the same way that Disney movies did when I was the same age, where I, you know, besides, like, maybe um, uh, An American Tale, like, somewhere out there, besides that song, like, I didn't really remember a lot of the songs. They didn't have the, the little earworm that stuck with me over the past few decades, mm. which I thought was kind of interesting. Did you have the um, hand puppets from Pizza Hut that from Land Before Time? Because I looked <laughs> yes. up those. Yes. Oh my god! Now that you just said that, <laughs> yeah. yes, I did. Yeah. So <laughs> pretty much, if it was a toy from a place that also sold food, because I was a fat kid, uh, yeah, I had it. <laughs> you would just like go through and get like multiple Happy Meals just to get all the toys. Mm, Although yeah. they, it was not McDonald's, though we should note because I think McDonald's and Disney were simpatico. So mm, like, yes. much in the way that Don Bluth movies are, you know, maybe like the side of Disney, mm-hmm. I think you know, they got the Burger Kings and the Pizza Hut, yeah. and maybe not, not the McDonald's. Yeah. So the, my my household, the the Nason Pearson household, was a had a strict no Pizza Hut policy. So whatever, no pizza your, or your no childhood pizza hut. No pizza gets hut. worse and okay. worse. Oh no, I had we we had fine pizza in our household, um, not the mongrel Pizza Hut Posh franchise. Pizza. Yeah, yeah. What what sort of pizza did you have? Well, if your pizza doesn't come with gold flecks dusted across its slices, then you're <laughs> shit and your family is garbage. Right. Um, 
So basically all the franchises that offered that. It's really just a New Orleans thing. You wouldn't understand. Did all the pizzas that you bought have to have a little baby baked inside of them? Because you're from New Orleans? Yes. Yes. And and by the time the pizza had been in the oven long enough to cook it, uh, the baby would just be incomprehensible plastic goop that you would likely eat. Uh, I ate a lot of plastic as a child, is what I'm saying. (laughs) I didn't play with many toys, but... Your insides did. My insides really saw a lot of action. Uh, I don't know what's happening right now. A king cake has a baby baked in for, uh, for... The, the Mardi Gras traditional Mardi Gras. dessert of a king cake <laughs> you ba- look has so a baby, confused. has a small plastic baby built into it that represents the baby Jesus. Oh. As we the all know, I've face face right never now heard of is this so before. <laughs> I was just like... Well, we all know the origin story I felt like I'd been dropped into, like, another planet where, oh, of course, <laughs> babies and cakes. Everyone knows babies and cakes. <laughs> Everyone knows... The tale is old as time. <laughs> Babies baked in cakes. Um, well, I, I didn't get the Pizza Hut toys, but I'm sure that I got at least some of like the Secret of Nim toys, probably a Land Before Time stuff too. Um, but my, exactly like Becky was saying, I marinated in a stew of cartoon movies growing up. Is that and... also a New Orleans dish I should be aware of? Or like. <laughs> Yeah, it's a gumbo of animation. Spicy. I don't know what you guys eat over you, there. You gotta make a rule of the Disney films. <laughs> oh my god, I've never heard Seth's Cajun accent. And that is all you will hear. How long did it again. train you to like not talk like that on a daily basis? Look, I still go to remedial lessons every once in a while. I really don't want to talk about it because it's very close to my heart. Um... I just know that I watched a shit ton of Don Bluth movies growing up. Basically, all of these, um, except for the ones that came kind of later on, like Anastasia Mm -hmm. that I knew I hadn't seen, I had seen basically all of the ones that we're going to talk about. Um, And they were never shown to me as, quote-unquote, Don Bluth films. And they were never kind of differentiated by you know, relatives and friends who introduced me to them as like, oh, well, this is like not Disney. So I feel like in a way they didn't really lump in with Disney, but I kind of figured them in the same family. And it really was kind of in rewatching them all now that I came to understand how different they were. But I knew even then that I really deeply connected with the way that they drew their characters. Um, They drew characters that were always in very real peril and that had already had bad shit happen to them and were kind of finding friends and making community in whatever way they possibly could. And as a very socially awkward kid, even from an early age, like I really connected with that. Um, and rewatching it, I really connected with that sensibility in in really all of the movies. Um, and then also, like I, I have to say that I had a cassette tape of the American Tale soundtrack, oh. and also several cassettes of Disney songs. But we'll get to that in a future episode. Um, but I had a cassette tape of the American Tale soundtrack, and would listen to somewhere out there over. And over and over again on my dad's Walkman, I would borrow my dad's original cassette Walkman (laughs) and play just, just the 
end title credit version of somewhere out there. So not the, this, not the, the squeaky mouse version. Not the squeaky with mouse, the, the human mouse version. The human adult version of Linda the song. Ronstadt, right? Linda Ronstadt and knockoff Peebo Bryson. <laughs> uh, and I would just bawl my eyes out. And it was, it was, and that would have been at, at most the age of like eight or nine. And I hadn't really made any kind of connection of it to, I don't know, to kind of any of the adult emotional terrain or stuff that that movie actually dealt with. But there was something that was so elemental and pure and searching about it um, that it really just made me super emotional at that age. Um, so yeah, so that was the other biggest kind of foothold I had in the Don Bluthiverse. You're still searching for that mouse who was out there singing at the same time as you from in a faraway place. Somewhere out there. Yeah, as for me, um, I'm a little bit like Becky. It's like, I almost remember the toys better than I remembered the movies. Like, I looked up some of the toys and was like, yeah, I definitely had that one. The, the hand puppets from Pizza Hut. Um, but I'm when feeling I was, sad now that I was bereft of these hand puppets. I mean, oh, it was so much fun. A house without Pizza Hut oh, is just no house at all. When I was watching the movies, I was surprised at things coming back to me, like just images that I would never have thought of again. But once I saw them again, I was like suddenly like, oh, I know this really well. Mm -hmm. Or I like looked at the cover of the Land Before Time DVD and like suddenly like remembered all of the characters' names, even though if you had quizzed me on that without look looking at them, I would have had no idea. So, yeah, I don't think I... I think like you're like weirdly like somewhat aware that they're not Disney movies, but yeah, when you're a kid, you don't really differentiate like what's a Disney yeah, movie. Yeah, cartoon what's is not. just a cartoon. I think I think even when you're little, you don't think this is a Disney cartoon. You just like that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think anybody was. They're not. You're not marketing to kids saying tired of Disney. Here's Don Bluth. <laughs> you know, you're just like kids like cartoons. Yeah. But yeah, I actually didn't own any of these movies on VHS for some reason. We had all the Disney movies um, of this era, but for some reason, these ones just kind of like slipped through the cracks. So I feel like I saw them. I know I saw Land Before Time in the theater, um, as well as um, probably All Dogs Go to Heaven. Like, those are the two that I remember the most from childhood. I'm not, well, yeah, American Tale might have been, like, I might have been a little too young to see that in the theater, but I definitely saw it at some point. But, yeah, for some reason, they just didn't make it into our house, so I don't know if um, we didn't go to the right fast food restaurants in order to buy them <laughs> or what, but uh, I had the toys, but, yeah, they didn't they didn't quite stick with me as what, like, I could, you know, name the Disney movies from this era, like, no problem, I could tell you the plot of them, and these ones, I really had no idea until rewatching them, but it did weirdly come back to me as like these weird like childhood memories of like just like images that would come yeah. to me. Yeah, I felt the same way and I really didn't remember the plot to any of these movies because I think they're very strange. <laughs> they <laughs> they're are very strange. strange. They're really esoteric. Because there's there's stories that are very specific and it's not like you can't really sum them up in one sentence, like The Little Mermaid yeah. or, you know, Aladdin. <laughs> Literally, or as I was rewatching yeah. like, Secret of Nim, I was, you know, kind of, like, writing notes alongside it and kind of trying to trace out, like, one a one-sentence logline of the plot. 
And very soon in, I'm like, I, there's no, there's no, like, summarizing this in a very simple, easy way. Yeah. There's not, like, a slug line for this movie. Yeah, which makes it really interesting that these movies got made at all, honestly. <laughs> for, for the most part, a lot of these are just so strange that they really do feel like somebody's specific vision. Um, yeah. Which is really interesting, but also I'm just like, how did these movies get made? <laughs> well, and it's fun because it, you're uh, talking about VHS tapes. It actually made me remember. So a lot of the kind of earlier movies that I got into as a kid and kind of animated films, especially were movies that my mom would tape off of cable because uh, I had yep, cable did that all growing too. up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, as we record here in the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California, Plug. I, Plug. I have several stacks of VHS tapes that I still have. And so I would not actually be surprised at all if I still have the recorded versions of Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, and maybe Secret of Nim, but I know for it's it, it wasn't until you were literally talking about VHS tapes that that made me remember like my mom's handwritten labeling on them because we would yeah. often buy we it was weird because we would often buy the VHS tapes of the Disney movies, but for whatever reason the Don Blue stuff would be on like HBO or whatever cable channels would show cartoon feature films and so that's that's also how i got introduced to them was on videotape maybe the fast food restaurants were just selling like your mom's handwritten like copy of it yeah maybe her arms got really tired (laughs) well and i'm sad in retrospect that my mom like didn't swede those movies (laughs) i guess i'll give you guys a little bit of background on don bluth uh just so we know who we're talking about uh he grew up in texas where give me the low don Sorry. Oh, that's usually my job is to make a really terrible pun. It was beautiful. It's okay. Um, He grew up in Texas where he used to ride a horse to the local theater to see Disney movies. I mean, who didn't? (laughs) Um, He was also a Mormon. Um, A Mormon? Yes. Okay. A A Latter-day Saint. A Merman? (laughs) And a Merman, but that's a whole, (laughs) you know, that's a secret history that he doesn't like to talk about. Do you know if he was a begrudging Mormon or was he actually a very faith-based person? I don't know if he's still like a practicing Mormon, but because he... Because religion and faith plays a lot in these movies. It does. Yeah, it's I mean, true. he did, he went on his mission, so he was at least like into the church throughout like his okay. like, he was late teens, early 20s. Um, and so in 1955, he got a job at Disney at a very young age um, and only stayed there for two years because he left to go to... Argentina for his mission. Was he an animator? Yeah. Okay. But so anyway, he ended up going back to Disney in the 70s and he worked on such films as Robin Hood, Pete's Dragon, and The Rescuers as an animator. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that a lot of, specifically in The Secret of Nim, I thought there was a lot of overlap in the uh, character design from Mm -hmm. Robin Hood and like the Mouse family. I was just like, wow, that looks really like familiar. And I have definitely seen Robin Hood, I think even more than The Secret of Nim. And just, I wonder if there was any like true overlap there. Well, there was. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, So he trained under uh, the legendary nine old men at Disney who are some like the most influential animators of classics there, but they were kind of starting to retire um, during the period that he worked there. And so Disney was in a state of flux and chaos. Um, and he's Don Bluth started feeling like Disney cared more about money and they weren't 
um, animating the movies like in the traditional old style that he preferred and that, that they used to. Because yeah, a lot of those movies in like the seventies and eighties were not Disney's greatest necessarily. Um, so Bluth actually left Disney with sixteen animators and started his own operation, and that's how they made Secret of Nim. So a lot wow. of the animators from Secret of 16. Nim were that's at amazing. Disney. That's amazing. I didn't. I thought it was like a handful. I didn't know. But that's. I mean, that's kind of the creative class of your company, just saying toodaloo. Yeah, so, I mean, as we'll see, like, throughout um, exploring all these movies, there's a very, like, interesting relationship between Don Bluth and Disney. And it's like, there's always some kind of competition going on between them. And actually, uh, Bluth said that he thought that maybe, like, him leaving would... um, would make Disney like work harder because he, he thought they were kind of getting lazy and that if they actually had some competition, you know, they might actually like step back up and make better movies, which they I'd did. say it worked. Yeah, it did. <laughs> there was a um, AV Club article that kind of credits Don Booth with maybe like paving the way for the Disney re- renaissance that started with The Little Mermaid because he did, you know, throughout the 80s, he really was big competition for them. Now, do you have a list of uh, the movies in the 80s from Disney? Like the kinds of movies that before mm. we hit the Renaissance, I believe it was Oliver and Company, mm-hmm. The Rescuers, The rescu- Rescuers Down Under, The Great Mouse Detective. A lot of mice. A lot yeah. of mice in the 80s. A lot of small rodent based. Yeah. There were, yes. And as we go through the movies, I'll okay. kind of mention which Disney movies oh, okay. were out at the same time. Okay, so we are going to start with The Secret of Nim, which was Don Booth's first feature film uh, that he directed. Uh, it was released uh, in July 1982. The budget was $7 million and it pulled in $14.7 million, so it wasn't like a colossal hit or anything, but it was very well respected. In the beginning, we were ordinary street rats, stealing our daily bread and living off the efforts of man's work. Uh, when it opened, uh, I was looking at the box office for it, and it's crazy. The movies that were playing in theaters when The Secret of Nim opened were E.T., Blade Runner, Star Trek Wrath of Khan, Rocky Three, Annie, Poltergeist, The Thing, Porky's, and Conan the Brain. They were all in theaters at the same time. That's some like, heavy competition. What? That is all, like, classics. Like, How was anything in theaters the same time as E.T.? <laughs> Just because E.T. is, like... I thought they weren't legally how, allowed to screen other films. Yeah. E.T. E- how, how did any other movie make money? Because E.T. just soaked up all the money. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember exactly when E.T. opened. It was I think it was toward the top of the box office at this time. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was in theaters for like an entire year. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. But I... Was it a summer movie? Do you know? Do I don't know. Okay. Because this was July. So I, I would assume that E.T. was like a June kind of release, which we could probably look up real quick. Okay. So we have Googled we and... We Googled it. Thanks, Google. <laughs> this would have been so much more difficult It came years out ago. June... E.T. came out June 11th, 1982. So it was only a month into the run. So yeah, I mean, Secret of Nim did not do E.T. money. As you might have guessed. <laughs> and Disney had actually turned down adapting because it's based on a book called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. 
And uh, Disney turned it down because they already had too many mice, even though they ended up doing more mice. <laughs> Why is there so much mice Why in the 80s? Why was there such a fascination? Why wasn't it like possums or raccoons? Or like... Armadillas? Or dogs or cats? Like it's oh, it's mice, just mice, mice, yeah. mice. But there hasn't been mice. Like I feel like mice had a had a moment and then they... <laughs> They peaked. They they're gone now. Like we have we had a significant mouse recently. Now look, mice. You did your best. But it was an '80s thing. We learned a lot for mice movies. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird, guys. Who knows why there were so many mice in the '80s? Also, just even specifically to Disney, having staked the their cornerstone character being a mouse, why would their inherent instinct not be to go anywhere but mice? Well, I mean, mice, mice did well for them. Mice. I guess so. Is there something so. with the power dynamic where it's you root for mice because they're, you know, predators or like trying to hunt them? Well, it's and... easy because like cats are always an enemy of mice. Right. Um, so you always have a villain and a cat, as we will see true. several evil cats. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just a really easy allegory. Really just, well, and maybe it's really just scapegoating of cats collectively as a species. Mm-hmm. I think Poor really cats. Disney might have been engineering a 60-year attempt at driving cat genocide when you think about it. Well, I mean, you could bake those in a cake instead, I guess. Let's talk about this movie. Guys, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. It's yeah. a weird movie. It is a weird movie with a weird opening. And I was watching it. And I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> I could not get a hold on what this plot was. Right, yeah. I wasn't watching it too carefully. I actually watched it again today with the commentary on just to kind of hear Bluth talk about it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's based on a book. And I think the book is a little bit more science because like, the book is about lab rats. But the movie's not really about lab rats. No, the first, like, half hour of this movie is just a single mom is trying to get home and a crow bothers her. (laughs) The crow does not bother her. The crow is amazing. A single mom, recent widow. Like, in in the first five minutes of the film, you come to understand this. And, like, even just the concepts of an animated film clearly for young audiences... Mm -hmm. And the lead-off of it is, this is a single mother of three children. Four children. Four children. Four children. One of them is dying. And a widower. Yeah, with a with one of her now, like, remaining family being on the chopping block and at death's door. Like, it is so dark from the beginning. And that's even before it gets into the kind of main mechanics of the plot, mm-hmm. which is about her trying to secure a location for her and her family to live that is outside the grabbing distance of the plow. Yes, so we can definitely read into a metaphor there about, you know, uh, a poor young mother and being displaced by the machine, the mechanics of, uh, I mean, is it a farmer or something? But, I mean, I think it can stand in for, like, a corporation or something like that, or big business. Well, yeah, large, large nefarious forces encroaching on you from outside that you have no ability to actually confront. Um, unless you band together and collectively struggle <laughs> with the other people in your community. Um, 
Yeah, I got it, none of this. <laughs> really? I got none of this, guys. The entire movie, oh, I was just like, what I, is this movie? I, I, I think the it. amulet is like a metaphor for adrenaline because she it makes her like strong. You know, like when uh, oh, your think- kids are in danger and you, you suddenly get all this strength. It happens to me all the time. No, see, I, I see the amulet as a metaphor for what the plot is about, which is a uh, collective struggle against oppression. Um, I got none of this. <laughs> Becky was was like, cute mice. I I honestly, for a long time, was like, what is this movie? (laughs) Don DeLuise is the crow man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, um, interesting fact about this is that they had to change the title of it because um, she was Mrs. Frisbee in the book and Frisbee would not let them use the name Frisbee, (laughs) so she became Brisbee. Um, But yeah, there's the... Wait, and, and uh, another thing, I, another wrinkle on that that I found when I was kind of reading about this, uh, they had recorded her and all the cast saying Frisbee throughout the entirety of the voice acting for the film. So the sound editors had to cut back oh. in like post, post, post production to find snippets of where the voice actors had said bruh. Oh like my god! The sound bruh, and splice it in every time. That was good work because I didn't notice it's anything weird yeah. about them saying her name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow! I hope those ADR guys got bonuses that time. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is very scary. It has that spider, and then like it there's this huge menacing scary. spider, and then they kill the spider with like a owl foot and then the owl is even <laughs> scarier than the spider it's just it's a drama it's a drama with a dumb crow that likes like trying to be like comic relief but the story isn't funny like it's just so weird that this is a, a movie for little kids but it is a full-on drama i do kind of wonder if they were purposefully going super dark to differentiate from disney because you know, the movie was made as a way to get back to more traditional animation. And watching the commentary, I did appreciate how much work went into all of this. I mean, any animation, it takes so much work. But they're very detailed about, like, the animation and the backgrounds and everything. And they, they really have a very... Um, an innate quality that, you know, they, they hold themselves to high standards and they execute that. But at the same time, they... Um, because this was their first movie, they basically had slave labor for the crew. They were working 110 hour weeks and they weren't, they stopped paying people for a while. Um, Bluth and Goldman mortgaged their homes and a lot of other people did as well. Behind the scenes was dark too. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what was going on like during this movie is it really was very anti-Disney, you know, it's like Disney has, you know, all the money in the world. And then they're like, really like, this is like the scrappy, you know, underdog story or, under mouse, I guess. Is it an underdog story if they're treating their employees terribly? I mean, I <laughs> like, think they were agreeing. To, I think they all believed passionately okay. in Don Bluth and the project. So I th- I don't think that they like actually like locked them in a, in a room it and wasn't forced them to drop. slavery back in. Oh, okay. Disney, it's not like the slave, the actual slave labor that Disney Corporation uses to manufacture their toys in Indonesian sweatshops. They also use the word damn in this movie, which is interesting. Yeah. They, they no, use the word, I think, damn and hell in The Black Cauldron, which is, I don't remember when that came out, but that was a Disney movie that is probably. Uh, it was one, after this. One yeah. of the worst ones. And it was, I think, one of the only PG rated ones mm-hmm. until like modern day Disney. 
Oh, and this movie also has that weird, like, trippy sequence when the rats are being injected, and it's, like, it's all very 2001 with, like, the colors and everything. It's very psychedelic. Yeah. I mean, there there are modes of visual storytelling. Like, aside from the thematic stuff that just at every level goes far more darker, far more elemental, and in my view, far more in line with the way that fairy tales used to be, like in the Hans Christian Andersen kind of sense, being very bloody, very dealing with life and death issues. Um, there are kind of modes of visual storytelling that really Disney would not have touched with a 10-foot pole. Um, yeah, I think the, the psychedelic thing was part of that. Um, but also, it's there's, there is a visual meticulousness that really, I don't think, returns to Disney's animation until much, much later. Um, aside from, again, like, and we'll get into this in our next episode, like, where I think Pixar really resuscitated the best of what was good about Disney. I feel like, in, in another sense, Don Bluth, like, really was competition with Disney and was telling stories that were very structurally different and very emotionally different than what Disney was even trying at that time. Yeah, and uh, last little fact about this movie is that Shannon Doherty was the voice of one of the little mice. That's right. All right, so should we move on to An American Tale? Well, I wanted to know, did you okay. actually have information about the Robin Hood uh, thing? Why the mice look so similar to uh, the foxes in The Robin mice Hood? look similar to the foxes? Yeah, like the character design is really similar to like Disney. Is it just because... It's probably just because it was the same animators. Well, and it's also a thing that occurred to me when I was watching the Don Bluth movies this time around was another thing that took until I became an adult to recognize in Disney was that how the extent to which they were influenced by anime um, and and manga and like Japanese comic books, um, the animation style for both people and animals was so directly influenced and... I mean, much smarter people than I have written like whole books about how Disney basically lifted animation styles for characters like straight out of Japanese animation at the time. Um, but I don't know. It was kind of interesting rewatching these. Just even even kind of weird technical things where like the animation isn't perfectly smooth, where it kind of you know jumps around and like every couple of frames are animated. That's very much like lifted from the Japanese style and tradition of animation. Okay. So we're the very like big expressive eyes um but but yeah it was kind of a thing that i came to appreciate watching them this time around well i don't know about you guys but i did not think this movie held up (laughs) i i I felt like it was a kind of a chore to get through honestly and though there are parts of it that i appreciated um you know some of the animation just the fact that it was very risky to have the main character be like a mom um, you know, caring for her child, which isn't really a thing like I feel like children can relate to. So it was a very risky thing. But like on the whole, like I, I just did not think that it held up very well as an adult watching this movie. I thought it worked pretty well. I, 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 I don't know how much of that is nostalgia for. I don't. This isn't one of the movies that I watched a whole lot. I think I maybe saw it slightly later in my childhood. But um, yeah, I mean, I I appreciated that it was different. I liked. I liked the darkness and the kind of weird moments and and there's I think this is true of a lot of these movies but there's just this undercurrent of sadness to it mm-hmm. and life is hard for these characters which isn't 
true of most yeah. Disney characters. They go through things, yeah. but like they're usually like princesses, you know. And it's <laughs> this is You've like that to fall back life on, is yeah. rough for these not people. I guess they're mice, and that that will carry us into uh, the next <laughs> the next movie as well. But yeah, I. Uh... I absolutely love this movie. <laughs> um, as an adult. This, as both a child and an adult. Um, I got levels of meaning from it that I could never have remotely considered when I was a kid. Um, I, I think what stuck with me when I was a kid was just the kind of self-sacrifice of Frisbee. And like in this, I was literally, this time around watching it, I was bawling near the end of the movie <laughs> because she... There, there's a moment when they think she's and her family have been rescued and they think that their house has been moved successfully and then it starts sinking into the mud. And in that moment, she like goes down, basically it decides that she'll be willing to go down with the ship, like basically trying to save her kids who were drowning in this mud hole. And that's when she uses that magical amulet to kind of lift the house back out of the... I, like, completely bawled my eyes out. It was such a... I just thought it was a beautifully crafted story about very unconventional characters. Um, And exactly like Chris is saying, like, the element of the awareness of mortality and the element of the awareness of trauma and that that's a real thing in people's lives... Um, and that it doesn't go away because of some status that you're lucky enough to be born with um, really hit home for me. Um, and I and I didn't have quite as positive a kind of loving, happy reaction to all the other films of his that I watched. But I really kind of consider this a, a pretty special like animated movie, especially for the time. It's good. I got none of that. <laughs> well, well let's you're, you're heartless on the inside. Yeah, I'm dead inside. Yep. An American Tale. Uh... <laughs> As you know, I have dedicated my life to helping those less fortunate than myself. Uh, that's everyone. And now I want you to help me. We must have a Huawei. A Huawei? What's a Huawei? You know, a Huawei. A watch gathering of mice for a reason. Oh, a rally. So that's what I said. A wowie. Um, I'm just going to say that I love that they mentioned Hanukkah in a movie and as a, as a little Jewish girl and as a little Jewish adult. <laughs> Did you identify? <laughs> was that like, uh, like when you were a kid, was that important to you? When it you was nice it? to see. And but as an adult, I think that it makes me feel good like knowing that there are kids out there today that like because Hanukkah is not well, a thing. And, and you know? I mean, like, just think of it in, like Jewish mice out there just have no role models. <laughs> it's really cinematically important that there's especially that Russian uh-huh. Jewish mice, right? Well, I'm, oh, double, I'm, triple I am minority. Russian and Jewish, and just I like that it's in a movie. You see Christmas and everything, so it's just nice that there are Jewish characters in a cartoon um, at all. Uh, regardless of my feelings for the movie as a whole, but I like that they're just they're just Jewish. It's not like a huge thing, but it's what they are, and they talk about Hanukkah and they're Russian. And I don't know. I just really I, I, maybe I just saw myself in that. Um, so I liked that. Excellent. Well, American Tale was released uh, in November 1986. 
Um, and it made $84.5 million worldwide, which was the wow. highest grossing non-Disney animated film at the time. So, yeah, that's bit, and what, did, what was the budget? The budget was only $9 million. So they made Ooh, wow. a little mouse killing on this movie. Yeah. Yeah, damn. you know what? The, these Don Bluth movies, like, to even get deals with um, Burger King or Pizza Hut or whatever, like, you have to be you know, a big movie, or mm. you have to yeah. be thought of as a big movie to get those deals. So I w- just wonder about that. Like, did The Secret of Nim? Do they sell toys for The Secret of Nim? Because I feel I like I had... I don't believe that they... D- maybe they did. Maybe no, the I'm success pretty of... Sure, I'm pretty maybe? sure they did, but I don't know if they were very successful at all. I don't know. I just wonder I if the success... I definitely remember some kind of, like, Burger King tie-in yeah. or something. Hmm. Do you think just right from the start, they were just like, oh, these guys are from Disney. They're not Disney, but they're from there, so let's just, you know... I, I bet their, like, professional pedigree played a huge part mm-hmm. both in terms of like getting that kind of merchandising tie-ins and stuff but also like hell in terms of getting distribution yeah you know like it wasn't exa- it wasn't nearly the same kind of cinematic landscape that we have now business-wise but you know you've got to ha- have something to hang on to ask for even seven or eight million dollars to make an animated feature film well you know what helps is if steven spielberg comes by oh, and yeah. says hey do you <laughs> want to make a movie for me yep so, Steven Hoberg? He, he did not <laughs> Uh, did he produce um, The Secret of Nim? No. So, he was okay. not. So he saw Secret of Nim and then sought there out Don Bluth uh, to work with him. Um, Fievel, the name Fievel, is named after Spielberg's grandfather. That was his Yiddish name. Don Bluth actually did not like the name Fievel, but when Steven Spielberg says your mouse is Fievel, yeah, yeah, your mouse your is Fievel. Don Bluth did not actually like the Jewish people, but he was convinced by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, to put this in Disney context, since we're going to be following Disney throughout this, this was the same year as The Great Mouse Detective. So they more mice, mice, but enough uh, of the fucking mice. American (laughs) Tale did better than Great Mouse Detective, so this was the movie that kind of beat Disney at its own game for the first time. And Disney was probably like, "Oh shit, they're doing the mice like." They're beating no, us at mice. Wow. What, what's happening? I found an internal memo from the Disney company that said, oh shit, they're beating us with these mice. <laughs> and uh, somewhere out there was nominated for an Oscar, but it lost to a little song called Take My Breath Away oh. from Top Gun. I, I have to say the songs are very, very memorable and catchy. I know I, I said agree, earlier yes. that I didn't really remember the songs, but b- despite outside of an American tale mm-hmm. because as soon as uh, there are no cats Yo, in America yeah. like I was just singing along with it so there are actually very memorable and catchy and I think they're probably the best thing about this movie is the the songs mm-hmm. personally yeah I could agree with that um, I love that like there are no cats in America that's such a perfect metaphor for like what immigrants believed America was like at this time, that it was just this land of opportunity. You could go there and like everything would be perfect. And I went to Cuba um, a couple months ago and that is kind of still how a lot of those people see America. It just has this legend as this place where things are perfect. And even though those of us who live here probably don't think it's quite there, um, I think that that really encapsulates that in a way that like kids can really identify with and understand like, oh, no cats. Like I get it, you know? Yeah, like, the idea of an animated feature film talking about the immigrant experience is still not really that big a theme in (laughs) cinema, like, ever. Again, a very strange... Strange story strange, for an animated not, movie for children. Strange, but not unrelatable. That was that, and that's the thing that really carries through to me as being like really valuable f- 
for like Don Bluth's contributions to animated film is that he really was telling stories about human experiences that a lot of kids do go through and don't really have cinematic role models or people to see that. And and that I think goes to the the Jewish heritage like you're discussing too. Like there aren't really movies about the <laughs> immigrant experience in America. There's also kind of a another story in this about like collective struggle and what it means to try to get recognized as a valid human really but a valid individual and part of a community and then also a kind of story about the dark flip side of that of like scapegoating um i i just really find it so interesting and really kind of noble that a filmmaker would want to make stories ostensibly for children that really grapple with those darker grown-up issues. Yeah, I mean, Five-O really suffers in this movie in a way that, like, I don't think heroes in Disney movies do. You just see him, like, in the squalor, kind of alone, and it's, it's, like, actually depressing. Like, I feel like one of the things that differentiates Don Bluth movies from Disney movies is the stakes and that you really kind of feel like the characters in these movies are in danger and are yes, suffering. Yes, there are real stakes mm-hmm. in these. Like, you feel like the even the main characters might die. Yeah. And sometimes that they might be okay with dying. <laughs> like, they're, like it's, it's really not overstating things to say that the mindset of the characters in these movies is just so much darker than really even most animated films now would want to engage with. Yeah, and it's also very interesting just how much of the real world is in this movie. Most, mm-hmm. I feel like animated movies, like, just, you know, they, there might be a real world there, but it's like you just see things from the animal's point of view, and it's like everything that you see is very general. But here it's very specific. I mean, there's the Statue of Liberty and, like, Ellis Island. You know, that whole experience is really the same for the mice as it is for people. And just, like, how much of that you see in the in the Russian politics, I looked them up a little bit but it was a little too complicated to <laughs> sum up but uh yeah i mean wait you, you we're not going to have an in-depth examination of the the czarist line I in mean, pre-soviet russia nope i'm sorry we no? are not no, no? maybe no, in the anastasia section okay okay that'll be the extra sode for this week and yet there are these really delightful moments in this movie too like the somewhere out there is something that i think a lot of people our age remember like for some reason gay babies yeah just i don't know like what it is i mean because i watch it now i'm like all right it's cute it's a little cheesy their voices are very squeaky um (laughs) they're looking at the moon but like for some reason that is just like burned onto my soul from like whenever i saw this good song and it was you know they got uh people bryson wannabe and uh linda ronstant to sing yeah the song so i mean it was a single which they actually did before disney i mean we're Mm -hmm. spoiler alert we're gonna be talking about some disney singles uh in the next episode but um yeah for now they actually invented that game i guess i Mm -hmm. mean I, i can't remember any Disney movie before this that did yeah, something like I, that? I can't think of any. There's popular Disney songs, but it's not like they did a radio play for, right, you right. know, chart topping. Um, so what did you think about this movie overall? Because I feel like I'm uh, the downer of this podcast because as again, I liked parts of it, but watching it as an adult, and I think my problem with a lot of these movies is that I just feel like they're so slow. 
and just so slowly paced that I just can't really get into it as an adult because I can watch a lot of Disney movies today. Like I'm not opposed to cartoons. Like I can watch a lot of Disney movies today and it's like no time has passed and I can watch it like The Lion King. I can just watch it like it's an amazing movie. But watching this, I can see why like kids would like it. But like for me, I just feel like I needed more like, come on, pick up the pace. (laughs) Well, so see, let me ask you this. Do you think that's you and the differing attention span that you bring to it or do you think it's a change in the way that movies have been made or maybe both of those that's things interesting. in some combination? That's always that's always an interesting thing to me I because think, obviously mm-hmm. movies always play different to you at each different level of your life. But also the, the ways that those movies are made now, like y- there are no slower movies now. It's all just quicker edits, faster pace, more plot. Um, even more, I feel like more musical numbers would get crammed into movies like this in order specifically to pick up the pace a bit. Yeah, I feel like what you're saying is also true of the Disney movies around this era, like Fox and the Hound. Like, yeah, and you that's know. true. And those movies, I you know, they're not. I don't think they're great either. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if. I'm the problem or if just movies at the time were just slower paced and we're not used to that anymore. Um, But just as far as, you know, we're looking back and seeing if something holds up for me in general, I feel like all these movies are just kind of drag a lot. It's not like there isn't great things about them again, like the songs in American tale, but like, especially in this one, I'm just like, Oh my God, come on. And like, I just wanted it to go faster. Just like, I don't know if it's the sound design. Maybe the sound design isn't so, you know, lush as it is now. So just like it seems like there's moments of like silence where like nothing's happening. I don't know. Apparently I'm alone on this. Yep. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there is no one who agrees with you. Um, yeah, no, I, in a way I understand what you're saying because, I mean, they do feel a little slow. They don't. They don't feel as perfectly worked over as like a lot of like the best Disney movies do. Like those movies are perfectly paced, you know, they they it's it's almost like a science like how good some of those mm-hmm. movies are. Yeah. And this doesn't have that. It's it's rough around the edges, but I think it makes up for that. And I mean it's almost more interesting to talk and think about this movie than it is necessarily to watch it. Just like the way that there are all these like um racial <laughs> or cultural, you know, mice, mm-hmm. like, influences. Like, Both. it really speaks to, like, Both. the melting pot. Yeah. Um, but there are some, like, really delightful characters in this movie as well. Like, the uh, Madeline Kahn, the Gussie, oh, so who um, pronounces her R's as W's and so says, uh, rally is a wowie. Like, that, like, <laughs> really amuses me still. Um, there's a pimp pigeon, basically, voiced by Christopher <laughs> Plummer. Uh, I enjoy that. The villain is a smoking rat with a cockroach sidekick, so you know he's evil. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Like, all these characters are... They weren't... Like, I didn't remember them the way that I remember Disney characters because, like, I had to actually rewatch the movie to be like, oh, yeah, like, that that crazy mouse. Well, and it's also, like... (laughs) Again, I it just sticks out to me the levels of meaning that are inherent to all of these movies that you don't get unless you're watching it as an adult with like a knowledge of some right. knowledge of U.S. history, some knowledge like because however we related to it as children, we relate to it entirely differently now. 
Um, so it was also interesting, Becky, like the way that th these didn't really connect with you. But I wonder if you would maybe have liked the movies more if you'd seen like all of these movies just as a kid. Um, I did like them when I was little, like because yeah. I did watch them repeatedly. Yeah, that's interesting to me. Um, and it's like for me, I I, I love Chris the the phrase that you use, rough around the edges, like that. I think describes basically everything but the animation about these movies. And it's a thing that I find supremely endearing. Um, yeah, even the song, like the somewhere out there is sun, like they're off pitch a lot of the time. Like they, it's not like this perfect like yeah. Disney musical song. It's like, it it's very like it. squeaky and raw. And yeah, I feel like that's even kind of like a metaphor for the movies themselves. Right, it's just that and, they like in, in, in the, the Disney version of that would be, you know, auto pitched to high heaven. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's interesting the imperfections that Don Bluth would bake into his particular cakes. Like it's that and like that a baby. Is, Sorry, I'm not going to get over the babies and cakes. <laughs> it, but that to me, I think, makes his movies inherently more interesting for me than watching a movie that is like a Swiss watch, so perfectly mechanized to go through all of the exact windings and turnings of its plot. I'll tell you my favorite thing about this movie. Is Was that it the Italian mouse that you had a crush on? No. it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tony, Tony the mouse was kind of hot, even though it turns out he was voiced by a woman. So he wasn't even actually a teen boy mouse. But there was, there was a sexy mouse in this movie. He's a very butch, androgynous mouse. I think, did really I tell like you that? That I think I had a crush on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the mouse. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't say it, you guys. She just, we could, we could just see it in her eyes. He read yeah. my diary. <laughs> Mrs. Tony Mouse. <laughs> no, my favorite part of this movie is that somebody worked on the movie whose name is Jesus Shakespeare. Really? Stay, I had no idea. Stay for the credits. No, I did Just have an G's. idea because Becky and I have been laughing about Jesus Shakespeare for about half of our lives. Half of our lives. Like, okay, Jesus. so we actually, Chris and I actually watched An American Tale together when we were like juniors in college. So a million years ago, and no, recently, very and, recently, last year, <laughs> last week, um, and you the, guys, the who one are you thing, inviting to senior prom? The one thing that I remember from that viewing experience is just watching the credits, and somebody's name is Jisoo <laughs> Shakespeare, and we could not stop laughing, and I'm still laughing to this day. Is it, yes. What does the G stand for? Is it Gary? God. 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 Well, that's a good abbreviation. You want to be humble. You're not gonna want to showboat that <laughs> off to everyone. Are they people out there whose last names are Shakespeare like still I mean do you think you get into restaurants that way <laughs> like, well but on the flip side of that I Shakespeare wonder... party of two <laughs> no you'd lead with party of two party of two the name is Shakespeare Jesus Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespeare. I, also I wonder what kind of person you have to be to decide that that's your stage name <laughs> And also, like, to include the Sue is, like, just G Shakespeare wasn't good enough. There's, there might be another G Shakespeare, so better whole, add the Sue. That adds a whole Southern charm to it that just isn't there otherwise. Oh G Sue! 
Uh, so that was an American tale. Yes, it was. <laughs> it sure was, Becky. Also, let's like let's have a moment of appreciation for Dom DeLuise in this movie. Since, let's have a uh, moment of appreciation for Dom DeLuise in almost every Dom Bluth movie. Yeah, apparently. exactly. Playing the exact same role in every movie. That's but fine. So, but he's like the highlight of playing each of the them, role basically. of Dom DeLuise is a thing that he should do in every movie. Mm-hmm. Although he really, really is doing the cowardly lion in this movie, like even more than he already sounds like Burt Lar is like. This movie is just like, it's basically just the cowardly line. So we'll move on to The Land Before Time, which opened in November 1988 and also made $84.5 million on a budget of $12.5 million. So that was also a really big hit. Are you just going to stay up there? Yes. Well, you can't. You're tearing my tree star. (gasps) It is very special. Very. His mother gave it to him. She did. Ooh, mother present. Very important. Oh, yes. Uh, I keep safe. Don't let nobody's touch. <laughs> Yuppie tree. You keep it safe. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, it also opened the same day as Oliver and Company. Like, exact same, same day. Same day. Mm-hmm. And it beat Oliver and oh. Company. So, again, this is Don Bluth sticking it to the mouse. A different mouse, the mouse that he didn't create. With a dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> but not that other mouse that's also different than the one that he... he yeah. Th- there were a lot of mice, you guys. It, it, no more mice. That- no more mice. And I don't know if this is intentional, but, like, Oliver and Company is about, like, orphans and stuff, and it feels oh. almost like a reaction oh, wow. to an American tale and, like, the more, maybe the more street, like, darker tone of the Don Bluth movies. So basically what Spielberg also um, executive produced this one and he it was his idea. He wanted a Bambi with dinosaurs, which is basically what this is. Uh, Bambi BC. (laughs) So he's had a a quite a long obsession with dinosaurs. I guess so. Um, Originally Spielberg and George Lucas also um, was involved, wanted it to be silent. They wanted it to be like the Fantasia segment that... um, with the dinosaurs that silence, that but uh, cool. it might have been. I mean, it wouldn't probably have made a lot of money, but um, well, just like Howard the Duck, might have been cool. <laughs> and the uh, Triceratops Sarah was originally a male named Bambo, so oh, I guess they were really whoa. going for that Bambi <laughs> theme. And uh, Siskel and Ebert liked it. They did not like. They both gave American th- uh, American Tale thumbs down, but they liked whoa. Land hmm. Before Time. So. Everything's coming up dinosaurs for Don Bluth. <laughs> um, so there's a bit of an irony alert with this film is that um, you might have noticed that it's very short. It's 69 minutes long. That's because nice. they had to cut 10 minutes from the film. That was Spielberg's note because he thought the T-Rex sequence was too scary. <laughs> what? So I Wait, guess he, there was a T Rex segment that was ten minutes long. I guess. Yeah. So. What was that part? I, yeah, I think they were cutting out is all kinds. Is there a kinds. director's? Tr- is there a director's cut? There was a director's cut of one of these movies. I don't think it was oh this God. one. But yeah. Interesting. And yeah, so I guess he was like, maybe he was just like, I want to do a scary T Rex se- sequence. I'm going to make him cut this one out, and I'm going to do it better. <laughs> right. 
Dude, and, is he cutting Bluth off at the knees here? And they also re-recorded the screams to be less screamy. Oh, like <laughs> so, less horrified? Yes, I guess so. So uh, I would love to see the original cut of this movie with like a terrifying <laughs> oh God, like I children screaming. And well, I guess it was just Jurassic Park. But <laughs> but I mean, again, like pulling back to the like bigger thematic things going through his movies, I feel like part of the reason why it they emotionally hit for me is the darkness and actual menace and threat there. And I actually did see this movie as being kind of consciously, deliberately, seemingly less threatening, even in terms of the T-Rex. Like it was, it was scary. It was kind of scary looking, but there was not like an element of mortal danger Mm -hmm. to it so much for me i don't know maybe not with the t-rex but i mean the mom dies and that's pretty upsetting like that's the thing that i remember like the image like even when i when i settled in to watch this movie again i remembered that there was a shadow of a dinosaur Mm -hmm. on the wall i didn't remember exactly what it was i thought it was actually the shadow of the mom and then when i was rewatching it and he's like chasing his own shadow Mm -hmm. and thinking it's his mom i was just like that's Devastating. I mean, that's it like was, more sophisticated yeah, than anything I can think dark. of. It's very dark. It's very dark. And movie. that is so, like even that that story moment was one of the ones that of all these movies like popped out the most at me as one I didn't remember at all, but just is completely fucking devastating. Like yeah. that is in in that's a basically most mostly silent story moment except for him calling out his mom's name, thinking that that's what he's seeing. Um, yeah, but that's I, such an efficient and really emotionally devastating moment. You know what? I actually thought there was a really nice scene with no dialogue that was really um, heartfelt when they're all trying to get to sleep at night and Sarah's oh, oh, yeah. Sarah's and there's no dialogue. Sarah's off by herself because she's kind of like arrogant. She's and a straight up bitch. <laughs> Sarah is a racist bitch. Right, she's a bitch as much as a little girl can be a bitch. Um, but Apparently, a lot because she, she is can, a bitch. Yeah, she well, can be a three horn bitch. She's a Tricera bitch. Say bitch again. Bitch. Okay. Uh, so bitch. she's she's off on her own, and all of the other members of the group, you know, slowly one by one, go over to her to keep her warm. And then Littlefoot is left all by himself. And then they go over to Littlefoot. And she, you know, is going to be, you think that she's going to be, you know, like, fuck y'all <laughs> again. But she's like. In a Don Bluth movie, it Don could Bluth actually way. happen. In a yeah. Don Bluth way. Um, but, you know, then she, then she walks over, you know, and then Littlefoot puts his she's arm shivering. around her. They shiver. Like, it's just, it was a really nice moment that had no dialogue. And it really showed their relationship with each other and their own personalities. And I thought that was really nice. So it, it does almost, you, I feel like you get the gist of this movie without dialogue because the visuals are good. And the, you know, the relationships between the characters can be conveyed visually mm-hmm. and what they're searching for and, and. I thought that was really good. This is probably the Don Bluth movie I like the most, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, I do think, again, it is very methodically paced, almost on the verge of being too slow. But it it does take its time, and I feel like the story is is uh, has enough depth that I never got bored. Whereas in An American Tale and A Secret of Nim, I felt like I was like, oh, great, I get it, come on. But I felt like this one really... Um, that wasn't a negative for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this marks a really distinct break with what Disney was doing. Disney didn't do dinosaurs. Disney pretty much always did some kind of cute animal, mice or dogs or whatever. And like this is this is really different. I mean, it doesn't have songs in it, mm-hmm. um, which I think helps this movie. I mean, I guess all the sequels do have songs, which is strange. 
Um, yeah. There are 13 sequels to this film somehow. <laughs> what? And there was, I think there was a TV show as well. How? I have not, I don't think I've seen any what of them. The, the, the dinosaur period Where? lasted a very long time. Oh, they're still going. So. They're still, they're still coming out. The last one was like last year. So one the of them has. hasn't come? What was that? The meteor hasn't come. <laughs> no, I mean, they've got like 65 million years to go through. Right. I mean, it's. Right. It's a rich vein. Yeah. You can keep tapping it for a while. Like I think Reba McIntyre was a voice in like the last one. It's like, why do you even spend money to like hire Reba on a like Land Before Time fourteen? Because they must be profitable, Chris. They made fourteen sequels. But like, are any children like, oh, well, Reba's in this one. I guess I'll check back in with the Look, franchise. Chris, like, you're gonna want those Rebos to be on your side, and <laughs> <laughs> you you're gonna want to spend the Reba bucks McIntyrely on your side. Oh, help me. <laughs> help me. Save me from these puns. Where's a tar pit when you need one? So, yes. So, I, I agree. Like, there are a lot of, like, really, like, that visual of the um, shadow and the, the moment when they're all sleeping. I think that there are a lot of, like, non-dialogue things. And, like, the T-Rex sequence is mostly, you know, action. So, I think it could have worked. But... We would not have had Ducky, and Ducky, Ducky is the cutest. Ducky. And I definitely yep, yep, remembered yep. her yep, yep, yep from my childhood. Oh, most certainly. She is, like, a really kind of fascinating character, like, the way that she speaks. And so she's voiced by a, a real, like, she was an actual little girl. Um, in Don Bluth movies, mostly they did actually have children voicing mm-hmm. children, which is mm-hmm. not something that's done very often yeah, today. I, I thought the voice acting in this movie of the kids was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Sarah was a little girl, Littlefoot, and Ducky. Because mm-hmm. uh, Spike didn't talk, and Petrie sounded like an adult man. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I think the same little girl uh, voiced um, the orphan in All Ducks Go to Heaven. did. And uh, I guess we have to mention the, the sad story that she was uh, yeah. murdered. Um, what? Yeah, that little girl. Uh, it's a very sad story. When she was I, ten. Yeah, not to go too much into it. You can you can find the information, but it is very sad. So, little shout out to Judith Barcy. Uh, she was a very talented, I think, Do you actress. Kn- I I hate to make this even sadder, but I've seen a picture of her gravestone, and it says "Yup, Yup, Yup" on it. Oh no! I'm gonna. <laughs> oh, no, we need to no, stop no. the podcast so I can cry about that, and we'll know, be back sorry, in twenty guys. minutes. I'm sorry. It's oh. we're we're here celebrating her. Awesome, amazing voiceover work. This podcast is in her memory. Yes. Yes. Um, Since Don Bluth is alive. Now that (laughs) segue from... This one's going to be a tribute to the very dead Don Bluth. But having (laughs) since learned that he has actually not shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, Segway from sad death. um, I kind of want to talk about... So smooth. (laughs) I want to talk about... Speaking of sad death. (laughs) I want to talk about that this whole movie is an allegory about heaven and faith. Like, have, did you guys pick this up? Because the entire movie, and I did not get this at all when I was little, but watching it as an adult, I was like, oh my yeah. God, like, Searching he, for the promised land, wandering the desert. Go, his mom died, and he is going to meet her in heaven, yeah. which is the Green Valley. And this other, uh, Sarah, is doubt. And, mm-hmm. you know, they say, like, Sarah's way is easier. Let's follow Sarah. And she is the one that doesn't believe in the Green Valley, and she is she's shown a to be she's shown to be wrong in the end. So the whole thing is very faith affirming, and very much there is a heaven, there's a hell, and in this dinosaur world, um, the Green Valley is their heaven where they're going to be together, and everything will be great at the end. And I just think it's really interesting because I was like, 
but they're dinosaurs. They're all they're all going to die. Right. <laughs> like it's interesting coming from the human angle, knowing that all of these characters, like they're they all are your race going, is doomed. Their race is doomed. So it was just really interesting that this whole movie is about their heaven. I don't know. Did you get that at all watching it? I wouldn't say I picked up on that, but I mean definitely the the metaphor of trying to find this better place. It's a very biblical kind of story, I think, and. I mean, I guess maybe the fact that it takes place so long ago kind of adds to that is it feels very mythic. Um, But also, like, I just like the dead parent thing. Like, I mean, I I was like, so many Don Bluth movies have that. And then I was like, well, but Disney did that so many times with Dumbo and Snow White and Cinderella. Like, basically, everyone doesn't have parents. And I think maybe even in the 80s and 90s, there was even more of that. Like, there were these movies, you know, Home Alone. Like, I'm wondering why, like, like why are so many family movies about not having parents? Is it because they're targeted towards children and it's kind of about children and learning the world and being scared and being independent, like, and learning those skills? I think that's exactly right. And, and also it hits children in the most again kind of elemental primordial fear place because the the parents are the at least for most of us the foundational element of what it means to be related to people in this world you know and and also in the position for again for most of us of being the providers and so it's about like what what hits you in the scariest spot is when the people who provide for you and the people who are your mentor figures and are supposed to be the folks who are there to warn you about dangers when they're no longer there. Um, and that was because that was another scene that actually hit me really hard was when um, his mother was dying and he mm-hmm. was talking to her and she was basically just giving him like the the spiel of like, look, you just have to keep on going. I know this is a journey that you thought you were going to make with me, but you're going to have to make this journey now. And you're going to have to find the people who you'll make that journey with. I'm crying all over. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super heavy. And it's, it's I don't know if I would, I I don't think it's as Judeo-Christian Becky as you are kind of placing it because I don't think there's a specific like satanic or luciferian influence that like I think there is it's sharp tooth I totally think he's either no because Lucifer the kind of Lucifer figure is a someone who misleads humans whereas sharp tooth is just like the the boogeyman monster I think of him as death like if not the devil then just death is chasing them. Maybe, but I but I don't think that there I don't think that there is a defined hell in the way but I definitely would say that that the the kind of green the green wonderfulness is is a kind of stand in for heaven or or really specifically in the more old testament sense, the promised land. Mm-hmm. Where like you're wandering in the desert for forty years and you finally make it there. Yeah. Um yeah, I love the tree star just as a symbol of like his mother, and it's it's something very memorable, like as a symbol that like it again, like it wasn't something that I like would have thought about like a month ago before watching this movie, but then when I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, that's such a powerful symbol, and I remembered it very vividly, mm-hmm. which I think I think it's a lot stronger than anything I can think of in Disney that's like similar, where that's all you know, it's characters and and it's fun, but like there's nothing that's like that symbolic. Yes, there. I'm. Yeah, I mean, I. I think Disney has had ebbs and flows of the 
kind of uh, of its kind of investment in emotional storytelling and in dramatic storytelling. Um, and even a lot of its movies that are super charming and fun aren't really dramatically as hefty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though I do think in a, in a way Land Before Time and still rewatching it, Land Before Time did seem a little bit lighter, just a little bit, like because you know that they're eventually going to make it there. It's still just such a profoundly like weighty movie, and the the characters have real stakes and real traumatic things happen to them, um, and and yeah, I feel like that really makes them hit really hard, and also like it it makes attempts of it, setting up symbolic and thematic elements and really giving them very deep meaning. Um, and in ways that I didn't even necessarily pick up on as a kid, but it was really cool, like rewatching them now and getting those much deeper meanings from them now. Yeah. These films really have, like, I feel like that orphan element is present in so many Disney movies, but they don't really dwell on it. And this movie is really about that. And you like see the mother die. Like it's really present in this movie. It's in Bambi. It's just, kind, it's kind of vague. And then they kind of thinking about like the comparison with Bambi, like that death happens entirely off screen. Bambi doesn't get a second to mourn. Like this dwells on death and absence and, and again, just mortality in a way that even most like live action dramatic movies don't really try to do, especially not ones that are geared toward a non-adult audience. Do you have anything else on Land Before Time? I like it. I would show my kids this one day. I think I think it would I think this holds up a lot. When you when you really want to scar them <laughs> and punish them for something bad that they've done, show uh-huh. them the land before time uh-huh. and they will be bawling. And, and next we'll talk about cancer. <laughs> Actually, next, speaking of uh, heaven, the next Don Mm -hmm. Bluth movie is All Dogs Go to Heaven, which was released uh, 1989, November, again, on a budget of $13.8 million, and it made uh, $27.1 million, so it wasn't quite the hit that um, the last two movies were. That's really interesting, because I remember that movie being released and being everywhere. Yeah, that was like, I thought it was a pretty big hit. Guess what? not. <laughs> <laughs> and so speaking, uh, so. Welcome to doing whatever you wish. Oh, this is really a lovely place you got here. Eating whatever you please. Follow me to a constant different climate. We keep it 73 degrees. We're still in Fahrenheit here. That's fine with me. Welcome to normal rat race. Oh, boy. To order and calm instead. Ah, great. Welcome to being dead. What? So many of these movies were released on the same day as Disney movies, and this one was released on the same day as The Little Mermaid. Oh, well, that's why so it that didn't may make the money, why. honestly. Yeah. That's why. That's because people, really I bet, were seeing Little Mermaid over and over and over because of the songs that I are was incredible. One of those people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, oh, and man. And they both feature singing in a giant clamshell. <laughs> this is the so... competing clamshell films of the summer. <laughs> Isn't it a thing to like. You release Star Wars, so your sci-fi movie you wouldn't release it the same day. Maybe your romantic comedy, like why would two this is like animated? A deep they would not situation. do that today. But they, but they don't release them on the same day because your audience is going to go to one or the other. 
So I'm just curious about, like, whoever picked these release dates, like, why were they like, yeah, fuck you, Disney, we're going to go on the same day, but more than often than not, so, like... So, little known fact, it actually turned out, uh, it was released several years after Walt Disney died and his frozen anti-Semitic head was cryogenically uh, put into deep freeze. Um, Don Bluth actually installed a, a series of uh, wiretaps in Walt Disney's residences. I never know if you're, what you're going to say is real or not. <laughs> Why are we back so to Nazis? Don Bluth knew the release schedule for all these Disney films well in advance, and really he spent the latter half of his life consumed with a vendetta where he would just make movies just in reaction to I need to a Walt disclaimer on this podcast that, that nothing Seth says is true. <laughs> Seth is our fictional correspondent. <laughs> Let's go back to the Okay. They were coming off of An American Tale and Land Before Time, which were both big hits. They both kind of put Disney in their place. And like we were saying before, you know, that kind of forced Disney to step up their game. So I don't know. Maybe Don Bluth wasn't worried about Disney at this point because they had, mm -hmm. you know, they had had these movies that weren't tremendously successful. Um, and I guess it's Thanksgiving weekend. So. All right. Or at least it's might have been like the week before Thanksgiving. But it's it's that time when like, you know, families have more time. But. Yeah, I don't know why they would release them on the same day. That definitely wouldn't happen now. So I'm not sure why they would do really that. But it's weird. it's yeah. not a good idea. Um, and it, it didn't pan out particularly well for All Dogs no. Go to ha Aww. Heaven. Aww. Um, this is the movie where the director's cut was stolen from Bluth's storage <laughs> room. There was apparently a much darker nightmare sequence for the dog. What? That was pretty dark. Yeah, it was even worse, <laughs> apparently. And so, yeah, you, as dark as these movies are, apparently there's a version of most of them that was oh, even darker. I would love to see those. I would those. really love to see those. Yeah. Like, yeah. do they just get their heads ripped off? Like, what, what, what makes it darker? In this movie, I wouldn't be surprised. There is a song lyric in this movie that says, Welcome to being dead. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what is going on in this movie? This so this movie, I mean, just to set it up for those people, is about an orphan girl who is, I guess, kind of a slave to a dog. Like she's a medium for animals, right? Like yes. she can talk to animals. She can she can talk to animals. So the um, evil dog named Carface, uh, <laughs> like, locks her in this junkyard and won't let her leave, so that she can. What does she do? Place bets or something? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah. She talks to horses and places and gets them to tell her who's going to win the races. She, she gets the inside information at the track, and he's like a gambler? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so so he's like a bookie. Yeah. And yeah. she's like the mole. And like, so, there's a whole gambling okay. element in this movie, but like animals uh, gambling. <laughs> yeah. It's, this is really a movie about gambling addiction. So the main dog, uh, Charles B. Barkin, I believe is yeah, his name. Yeah, Char Charlie. It's not Charles B. Barkley? Uh, Barkin. Ch Charlie B. Barkin. I believe that is it. <laughs> Voice you by know about those Charlies. <laughs> yes. Baby Barkin. Voice by Burt Reynolds. <laughs> who does his own singing in this movie. Oh. And Ill advisedly. Stunts. It is not the songs are a little painful in this movie, I have to say. Like they are yeah. they're they feel really half assed. Like even not just the performances, but even the writing of them. Just they're very short, they're very weird, and they're not good. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not very catchy, they're not very memorable, they're just kind of strange and they meander. When when they if they're not too short then they're too long. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like beat poetry almost. Like it's just <laughs> it, they're almost like spoken word. Like that's okay, how. I will. I have to fully cop to 
not having rewatched this film and also not being fully certain that I ever watched it when it came out. It like and by not being fully certain that I watched it, I'm relatively sure that I never watched this movie. <laughs> oh, I watched it um, a lot because I definitely had the toys, and I definitely remember what those characters look like. I because feel I like remember I might my have toys. had one of the toys for it and just never watched the movie. I was like, yeah, I get this Burger King Happy Meal. Yeah, I think enough. that the I know I saw the movie, but I don't think I saw it too many times. Like the images definitely came back to me. Like we like okay. when that uh, alligator suddenly came by and started singing. Uh, There's an alligator in, in this a world completely strange out of nowhere sequence. Um it's kind of like a drag queen alligator, I guess. Like <laughs> yeah. you said it takes place in Louisiana? Yeah. Where in Louisiana? Like New Orleans. Yeah. Probably. Okay. That so the alligator is in a sewer. Um there are no sewers. Well, no, and there are no cats really, in America. That's not true either. Yeah. So that's kind of the thing about New Orleans. Is there is not too much of the underground. Cut musical sequence. No sewers in New Orleans. I don't think they were New thinking Orleans. of that when they no? <laughs> made this. You don't think that was movie? Other unrealistic things about this movie are evil dogs talking to people <laughs> and gambling. And well, the rest of that I can deal with. Also, heaven and hell. <laughs> sewers in Louisiana. Now that's a bridge too far. What do we think about the heaven and hell in this movie? Okay, so we see hell. Do yes. we see it more than in a dream sequence? Do we actually go into hell? I'm so, I just watched clips of this on YouTube. No, I don't think there's... Because dogs don't go there. <laughs> but we don't see it. No, I think it's Becky, just the dream you sequence. Know by now the dogs don't go there. So the, the end of the movie is okay. very, it's very hell-ish because there's like fire and the orphan girl is almost about to die. She has, she gets like pneumonia. And yeah, she gets dies. pneumonia. Yeah. It's, apparently, that's the Don Bluth disease. <laughs> but I don't I don't think that there's any actual hell. It's I believe it's just a dream. Okay, sequence. but there is it's a heaven. Like there's oh, there's, definitely there's totally heaven. clouds and shit. <laughs> like it's like there's a watch factory Defining up features, there. Clouds. <laughs> actual yeah. clouds, uh, not actual shit. Yes, and I do enjoy that little like whippet angel. I guess is the name of it. That mm-hmm. little dog. That but it's it's. It's still just very, like, just seeing a dog go to heaven, like, it's dark. I mean, this dog is dead. Do you think that one of the inspirations for this story is having kids deal with their pets that die, maybe? Like, and and say your your child, you know, loses their pet, you can show them this movie and they will feel better about it some way. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously not having seen the movie, like, all of my experience of it, like, seeing the trailers and even, like, re-looking at, like, IMDb stuff in the run-up to us recording this, like, that's the only thing that sprang to mind to me as mm-hmm. a reason for this movie being made. It's, like, a kind of comforting tale of, like, yes, of course these... Are in the it is not world. a comforting tale, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it is really... I mean, there's... Lots of talk about murder. Like, they straight up use, like, the words, yeah, like, they, killing and murder. Like, I was murdered. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, that's pretty heavy for... Really? Yeah. Yeah. And, the, like, Carface is, like, super evil. Like, he actually does kill the doc, because, like, that's how he goes to heaven. So it's, like, it's not even just, like, a, he's evil and he wants to kill him. Like, he straight up kills him. Is there any comeuppance for Carface? No, he goes to heaven. <laughs> Wait, he goes to heaven, He too? goes to heaven, and all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> I don't like this system. <laughs> I All of them. Honestly, <laughs> so I feel you, like it's not every, it's not called every dog, but Carface goes so to heaven. So what happens when they're all sequel. up in heaven and they they run into each other at like I don't know the park, <laughs> the heaven park? Well, it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, it's super. So awkward. yeah, the last scene of this movie is Carface dies and goes to heaven, and it's like played for comedy. But it's then that's a very disturbing message because he's like 
really like trying to murder dogs, trying to murder girls. And then he gets to go to heaven. I'm like, I don't think that all dogs should get a pass. <laughs> Some dogs should go to hell. But the yeah, real last, like that should have been the sequel. The real last scene of the movie, I, I'm pretty sure, is uh, him coming down as a ghost, Charlie, coming down as a ghost to say that he's sorry because he was using the little girl for a while. She was just a bet. <laughs> that whole like a plot. stupid bet. But then like feelings developed and they love each other. Um, but like it was a very ghost in moment. A, in a friendly way. In a friendly let's way. Just, let's just be. In a, in a family friend way. But it was very ghost-like where he comes back as a ghost to say goodbye <laughs> before going straight back up to heaven. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of movies that have like a sort of a protagonist like that that's like uh, using like the nice person and and then there's you know, eventually he comes to care about her and there's reconciliation. But in this one, it just, it felt like, I don't know, worse. I don't know if it was just like Burt Reynolds or something, but it just felt like, like, I don't know. He just seemed like kind of a creep. <laughs> like, he's, it's not a very redeemable character like this dog. And I, I don't know if he should have gone to heaven either. I'm, but, I, and he's supposed to be redeemed. Like, he gets to go to heaven again because there's the, the threat of him going to hell because he, if you go back to earth... You, if you die again, then you go to hell. But this he gets to be redeemed. Again, as a, as a completely neutral observer, uh, is there a godhead of some sort? Is there ever a no, representation there's just of a, the arbiter, the judge of these people's lives? I don't believe They do not so. have God in this movie. You So it's godless. No, it's plenty God. They're just not specifying which mm. God. God is mm. dog backwards, by the way. All gods go to heaven, too. I was not aware of that. That throws Do they go elsewhere? <laughs> what Don religion Bluthman. talk are we getting into here with these Dom Luth movies? This is why it's interesting that he's Mormon because there really is a lot of faith in these. That's movies. true. Yeah, I didn't even. Well, think but about it's that. also it's it's also interesting because it, they really aren't evangelical at all. They're like methodically not specific to any one religious practice. But I think they had to do that. To appeal no, to the most. People. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they did, but it's but it's interesting that you know for someone mm-hmm. of that specific faith that he wouldn't do that. Well, Dom DeLuise is also in this movie. For some <laughs> reason, he was not in Land Before Time. I don't know if he was I, like busy. I think they just didn't have a character for him because he's very much the comedy relief. Over Maybe he the was top. sharp tooth, and he just. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in this one it's it's interesting that he's not because like the alligator would be the normal I feel like Don Bluth kind of character or sorry Don DeLuise character but um, no he's just another animal wearing a shirt and no pants and I don't know why he's always wearing a shirt and no pants why is there this through line of pantslessness in the Don Bluthiverse it's weird I mean we didn't talk about it but in the secret of Nim one of those little mouse kids is just wearing a bow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is also true. It was a very it's a Chippendales mouse. I kept thinking about that. And you know what? So throughout the movie, I'm sorry to go back oh, to no. The Secret of Nim, but throughout that movie, she's wearing like a red cape thing. Uh-huh. So that's, that's her clothes. And then later in the movie, they take it off of her and she's naked, like presumably in that world for her. And I feel like... No, no when I Becky, was- she has a very soft furry coat. She is never naked. I think I feel uncomfortable in that moment because they took off her like costume. So like in that world, she's naked. And it is weird. It like, is weird. It makes me feel like uncomfortable. I just wanted to confirm. Yeah, but so Charlie does not wear any clothing. He uh, no. But he, the other dogs do wear clothing. So what? this is a dog that's just hanging out naked with a little girl <laughs> the whole time. That's true. The other dogs. So this is wear a clothes. story about exhibitionism. 
it's a story about many things, apparently. Um, I don't yeah, think any of us liked this movie. <laughs> I, I did end up watching it twice because I wasn't paying attention enough the first time. But That's yeah, what I do with the ones I really hate. I, I think this movie just kind of, it feels a little like mean to me. And it just doesn't, it, yeah, it just doesn't, like this isn't something that I would want to show my kids. It just, it has this like hard edged, like the world's tough like kind of vibe to it and mm-hmm. yeah i just i don't think it just kind of left me with a bad feeling like i just felt bad after watching it Both and times. i'm you know old enough to handle this kind of thing <laughs> you would think but yeah it's very strange so i would not uh all right i would not say this one holds up so should we move on to anastasia yes. So there's a big jump here. Um, we are skipping over such titles as Rock a Doodle, Thumbelina, <laughs> A Troll in Central Park, and The Pebble and the Penguin. Did anyone watch those movies there, there, in preparation? What? Wait, when did Fern Gully happen? Wasn't that like Don Bluth? That was not Don Bluth. Oh, Fern Gully was not Don Bluth. Isn't that crazy? Bluth. I totally, I was still who, convinced. Who did, did Fern Gully? I actually, Some I, other randos. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> Total randos. Just folks off the street. Um, and it was interesting. Literally, at first, I didn't believe that it wasn't Don Bluth. I, like, searched meticulously through the IMDb to be like, where are you hiding Don Bluth? I still don't believe it. But but see, what, what finally convinced me was that I started looking at some clips of it. And like we were talking about earlier, it's fascinating the extent to which our kind of child minds, like, fill in things. I feel like... I didn't appreciate until rewatching these movies now how intricate the animation style is. It's really meticulously drawn out. Um, I looked at some clips of Fern Gully, and it's a lot more rudimentary oh, than any of right. those Don Bluth movies. Hmm. And literally, like that was the one thing where I was like, "Okay, no, this definitely isn't his style." Hmm, interesting. Because otherwise, it, immediately when we like decided to do Don Bluth movies for this podcast, I was like, "Oh." Fern Gully, I can't wait to revisit that. It's like, if it's not Disney, it must be Don Blue, right? Right. Uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah. That should have been his mom. Okay, though. so no Fern Gully, but, but I. But that was 92, to just, so that was a oh, little okay. before. So I, the, of all the ones you just mentioned, I don't think I watched any of them. I never saw a single one. Like, as a little kid, as an adult, nope. nothing. Yeah, so A Troll in Central Park grossed $71,000 in the box <laughs> office. <laughs> it, was, it was just kind of dumped. Like, the studio <laughs> didn't like it. I think it was MGM. I. Should probably double check. Wow, what happened there? They just dumped, and none of those movies did well. So after, like, All Dogs was kind of like a bit of a slump, and then, like, it was just downhill for Don Bluth. You know what? You know why? It's because Disney had their Renaissance period. Yeah. So, like, while I feel like there's this scale while, like, while Don Bluth is up, Disney is down, mm-hmm. and when Disney's up, Don Bluth is down, and they can't like not. Yeah. There's no way for both of them to they be can't up. meet in the yeah. middle. No, because like the '80s was like the dead zone for Disney, basically, true. and that's, that's when Don true. Bluth's biggest movies mm-hmm. came out. And then, so like Disney, wow, in this time obviously had The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, and then they kind of started to like fall off a little. Like The Lion King was like the peak, and then their next movies did not do quite as well. Mm-hmm. And that's when Don Booth came back with Anastasia <laughs> in 1997. So that was the year that Hercules came out for mm, us, yeah. like following what Disney was doing. Anastasia, sir, just wishing I could do the job for you, sir. I'd give her a ha, then a hi-ya, and then a woo and I'd kick her, sir. So Anastasia came out on November 14th, 1997, on a 12- Point five million budget and it made 139.8 million dollars worldwide Whoa. so it was it still is i bet Don that Bluth's. soundtrack also 
got a lot of uh, got a lot of money there. Got two Oscar nominations too. Um, yeah, so this was a big comeback for Don Bluth after those four movies. I, I did see Rockadoodle, I think, on video. <laughs> I'm sorry. I watched the trailer for that just because I was like, what is Rockadoodle? It is about a Elvis impersonator kind of rooster that needs to like sing. They're, like the world has gone dark and he needs to like sing the sun back. Oh my God. It is very strange looking. And it's like part of his live action, which is the weird part. What? Yeah, like it starts with like a little... I just saw this in the trailer. I didn't remember it. There's a little boy like reading and then he becomes like a little chicken or something in this world. Wait, what? Maybe we should have watched Rockadoodle. Because... Why did we not have a Rockadoodle centric episode? <laughs> I mean, all right, we're canceling Disney singles. We're doing Rockadoodle for the next. This is all going the in the trash. So on the day that Anastasia was released, Disney said, fuck you, we're reissuing The Little Mermaid. <laughs> And that's those, what they did. On the those, day it was released? The day it came out. So, those petty wait, bitches. Wait, do you mean in theaters? Yeah, they oh, reissued it oh in theaters um, on the same day. Frenemies. Dick, Frenemies for dick life. move, Disney. Um, it was a real And move. Disney also refused to like air commercials for Anastasia during like the wonderful world of Disney, which I can kind of understand because it's like they don't want to like... It's their competition. They, well, yeah, and they don't want people to like think that Anastasia is mm, a Disney movie. That's true. Like, if you saw it, like, on a Disney... You would just automatically yeah. assume it's a Disney movie. So, but there were even rumors that, like, Disney employees were, like, hiding the toys in Toys R Us to, like, not let Anastasia win. So, yeah, there was definitely a war going on between Bluth and Disney wow. at this point. I have never seen Anastasia. And for this podcast, I, you know, watch clips on YouTube, um, you know, all the musical numbers, um, a couple of the scenes, but I've never watched it. And it was weird that I haven't, but I knew every song. <laughs> and so I, think I knew it's almost every song and I had never how? seen it until the I know every of this. Song? I, well, I mean, the, the Journey to the Past song was... That, that was a single, right? Did that win an Oscar or just... No, I, it was it nominated. nominated. Well, do you remember, okay. um, I think you're thinking of At the Beginning by the woman who sang, I love you always, forever, near, far. Do you remember no, that song? Don, I remember that Donna song. Donna Lewis. But um, I did not remember that song. She was like a one-hit wonder. And then yeah. she sang... Well, I guess she's not a one-hit wonder because she sang... Um, at the beginning with life is a road and I want to keep Oh, that song, and yeah. Na, 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 na. Yeah, and that was a hit single from this movie. Okay, yeah, Journey to the Past was the one no. that was nominated for an Oscar. I don't remember that song at all. Oh, I, I no. do remember that mm -hmm. one. And it was also nominated for Best Comedy Musical Score, because I guess oh. for a few years that hmm. was an Oscar category. They hmm. separated it out like that, and then they changed it. I think it was like five years. I, I did not yeah. remember that. These songs are like really good. <laughs> Really good songs. They're good. So what I noticed with this movie is that, like, it really feels more like a Broadway musical and then they just, like, or, like, some yes. Broadway musicals where they just, like, stop the story and, like, sing a, like, kind of like a pop single and then go back to the story. Like, Disney movies tend to, like, integrate the songs a lot more and a lot of times the songs are about the story. This one is just, like... All right, we're gonna do a song. Like the song doesn't have that much to do with what's going on. Like, like it's kind of go. vague, purposely vague. Well, yeah. I, I would split that hair a bit finer. Um, and split I think it. it's the the point that you made within that point is that it's much more consciously styled like a musical. Mm. We're like, because there are some songs that tie into the story. You know, there's the song that like plays on her music box. That's part of the connective tissue that helps her remember that she is. Uh, born of royal lineage. Um, but 
regardless when those musical moments happen, the whole other story, the plot comes to a screeching halt. So you can do this musical number. Um, And it was interesting, like watching it now, because if anything, it almost seems like this movie is a little bit more Don Bluth getting influenced by the more successful Disney movies that were directly leading up to this. In every way, I feel like this is Don Bluth kind of chasing after Disney. And it feels the least personal. Like, it doesn't have most of the signature Don Bluth stuff that I think we identified in the other movies. I mean, we can talk about more of it. But, like, it had celebrity voices. It has Mm -hmm. this big, like, product promotion. It was, like, it was a big release. Like, it was really a reaction to those Disney movies. And you can tell even, like, it's a story of a princess, you know, which is, like, the most Disney Mm -hmm. thing you could possibly do. Um, And before this, you know, we talked, like... The Don Bluth protagonists were not princesses. They were poor people. They were orphans, you know, and like not princess orphans, but like actual like yeah. sad orphans. And yeah, in in so many ways, I think this feels just kind of like a pale imitation of Disney. You know what? I think that it's definitely a reaction to what Disney was doing, but it's really interesting watching the animation style because, well, first of all, these are mm. adults like and doing a you know it's about adults and they look like adults and they move like adults like when i look at anastasia and how she moves her eyes aren't half the size of her head um, <laughs> yeah. and she just moves no, like a very, person it's very true yeah they like move like for the most part like a, like you would animate like adult humans like an adult human yeah. versus you know a princess where you know just like her boobs are enormous her waist is really skinny and just they're like i'm thinking of like bell or you know, other um, Disney princesses, just like the way that they're shaped is very cartoony versus the people in this movie. I feel like it's like you're trying to actually animate humans. Mm-hmm. That's true. That might be like Don Bluth because he is so dedicated to, I think, being true to life and being, you know, being about people rather than these like cartoony images. So maybe that's kind of mm-hmm. what differentiates yeah, and him with this movie. Yeah, it's a subtle thing that you're like, wait a minute, why does this look so different? I was just like, I was kind of disappointed just by the whole princess aspect of it because it's just, I mean, we've seen so much of it and it's just like, there's so many movies where it's like, oh, she's poor and relatable, but it's okay, she's secretly a princess. Like, I love that the Don Bluth movies from before were like, oh, you're, you're not suddenly a princess at the end. Like, th- mm-hmm. that's basically every Disney movie ends with like, it's okay, she's a princess. Like, mm-hmm. and and this one kind of, you know, caters to that whole stereotype. And I don't know, I just found it a little disappointing. And this one also has Angela Lansbury voicing the grandma, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. like, Really like picking through Disney's trash at this point. Like, yeah, it's it's Mrs. Potts part two. Let's not yeah. shit ourselves here. Yeah, it tries. It it feels a little try hard, even though it's I a think little bit the of music, the music, like they tried hard with the music, and like after the abysmal like songs in um, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, I felt like they really yeah. did <laughs> write great songs that you know stand the test of time. Like as soon as I heard Journey to the Past, I was singing it to myself. Mm-hmm. Um but as far as everything else, it feels like a little like, oh you're just really trying to be Disney. Yeah, and like it's very nineties, but they cast Meg Ryan as the Russian princess and like her vocal styling it, I don't know. It's not that different from Disney princesses, but she's just she's it's like, also not that different from high school theater productions. Yeah. It's <laughs> I'm secretly a Russian princess. Yeah. Who would have believed it? She's just very, she's like very like, 
She's got a lot of attitude for like someone who grew up in an orphanage. She's very yeah. entitled. It's it's <laughs> just weird. And I'm not sure if that's just Meg Ryan or what, but uh, how old is she supposed to be in this movie? Probably thirty nine. Like eight- <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing she's like eighteen. Because she just felt like an adult woman versus like a teenager. She, yeah. Well, yeah, because she was going out on her own for the first time. Like she had she been raised like in an orphanage, and adult the movie begins when she yeah. is leaving the orphanage. So she's probably yeah, eighteen or whatever age in Russia you're legally an adult. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> the age of consent is seven. Um, but I did really enjoy um, Hank Azaria voicing Bartok the Bat. Like he was very he much was, the Dom DeLuise again, of this movie. Uh, again, the the Bartok is that is that it? Bartok is that the voice? He's yeah. a very he's a very meticulous character. And so, for Anastasia fans out there, it's about to become a Broadway musical. So you will get all the Anastasia you can handle. For all you Fanastasias out there. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah, I think that this movie, it's such a weird story. It's just weird to be, like, Russian, like, like weird, like it's a weird story. So I feel yeah. like in that respect, it feels well, like Don Bluth's, you know, overall yeah, no, vibe. But. I, I get exactly what you're, like, it, it fits in with part of the similar setups of the Don Bluth universe. But this one... And maybe I'm only seeing it that way because I've only watched it now and didn't see it when it came out. But it seems like this one is attempting to do that Don Bluth type of plot setup with none of the characterization and none of the actual, like, spending the time on the actual characters experiencing this stuff. There's, like, this weird blizzard of five minutes of exposition at the start. And then there are, like, these very... Exposition from Angela Lansbury is always palatable. Yeah, Angela Lansbury just drops plot um, in all the moments where they should have spent time actually developing these characters. So, like, it's it's an attempt to have a story of a woe-begone, uh, forgotten Russian princess, but you don't spend... That was the working title, by the way. Woe-begone, forgotten <laughs> yeah. Russian princess. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but they didn't just they just didn't spend any of the time on the characters to have you at any point believe that these were people going through that actual experience. So it it was it was strange. It it was like Chris was saying. I, I think it's very clearly an attempt by Don Bluth to catch up um, to what he saw as as Disney's ways of kind of dominating the animation world, and I don't really think it succeeds on those merits. Yeah, um, I think the one like really Don Bluthy kind of thing is the villain Rasputin, who is a corpse. Yeah, it's the closest thing. <laughs> who is like yeah. literally falling apart. Literal like corpse. his body parts are just spilling everywhere. It's kind of disgusting. There's and a I musical loved, number. I loved his. I loved his moments. Um, and I will also admit, so I never saw Anastasia, but there was like an HBO movie about Rasputin, and I th- think. It starred Liam Neeson. I don't remember who starred in it, but it was really well done, and I was obsessed with that. So, like, going into this, I was very interested to see how they would treat that character of Rasputin, who, I mean, even in the actual history, he seems like a made-up story yeah. of a human being. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was the closest thing to a Bluthian characterization of what a character in this universe should be like. And those are really those were like the only moments of the film that I thought had any pulse. Yeah, I think you're right about the characters. Is it felt like Anastasia was just like she's spunky, like mm-hmm. you know, it was like, it felt she felt like a really 
like bad version of like Belle or Ariel or something. Like I will also be very frank. I don't think Belle was a good character at all either. Well, that and is I a think discussion it's just that's a discussion for another, for another time. It's just about on the same level of character depth as any of those princesses. Ariel's awesome. That's all I'm going to mm-hmm. say about that. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are moving on to Titan AE, which my fellow podcasters did not deign no, to watch. No, I just couldn't. I'm still naked here. I hadn't noticed. Now hold still or you lose something really important. Hand me the probe. The probe? Uh, wh- wh- where does the probe go? Uh, you know, I'm really feeling much better. Ah! Hey! This is just great. Cross half the galaxy, nearly get our butts shot off by the dredge, just so we can rescue the window washer. Hey, for your information, I happen to be humanity's last great hope. I weep for the species. This is his final movie, right? Yes, this is his final movie. So I wanted to watch it because I I looked it up to see what it was. Um, it was co. It was written by Ben Edlund, John August, and Joss Whedon. Oh wow! So there's some uh, pedigree there. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, as we found out with Twister, I think everything that I liked or saw in my childhood it was just secretly written by Joss Whedon. <laughs> Your life is secretly written by Joss Whedon. Oh, that is. I I hope that's true. Um, so it had a $75 million budget. It was released. Whoa, 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 whoa. $75 million? <laughs> that is true. Isn't the budget, and I know there's like, you know, the times change, but like his first few movies, what were the budgets? Like $13 million? Yeah, they Seven, were much lower. Nine, Even Anastasia 12, was much 13. lower. So Anastasia, um, they, Fox wanted their own animation studio, so that was the first movie that came through that, and they hired Don Bluth and Gary Goldman to hire uh, to head up that. I vaguely remember that story. So they created that studio for yeah. Don Bluth and Anastasia, and then it closed down after Titan <laughs> came out. Oh, damn. Uh, because it made uh, $36.8 million worldwide, mm. so uh, oh. about half of its budget. Um, and so it featured the voices of Matt Damon, Drew Barrymore, Janine Garofalo, and Bill Pullman. Um, it ended up leaking losing $100 million for the studio and closed them down. Jesus. And it was Fox's last animated film until The Simpsons seven years later. So they just kind of were burned by animation after this. Man. But um, the studio was also like really troubled at this time. So I, I don't think that you can really blame this movie specifically. They had, while this movie was in production, they laid off a bunch of animators. So they had to like actually outsource scenes of this movie to other animation oh, companies. Man. So like there were several different companies like animating this movie. Not a good sign. So the movie is also like rated PG and not G. So it's a, it's very clearly an attempt to chase a different audience. It, unlike, um, you know, Anastasia, which was chasing Disney, this was really going after like a 12-year-old boy kind of audience. The soundtrack and the songs are in the, in the movie is like, it's all like lit, Jamiroquai, like Power Man 5000. Do you 5000. think it's because, and this was released 2000, do you think it's because the prequels came out in 1999 and they were like, oh, everything's in oh, space Star now? Wars? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. Um, I think that's uh, that's really insightful, actually. I, I bet that's exact, because that is the exact, like, age range mm-hmm. audience that they're going after with that movie. Yeah, yeah they would have known. I mean, and it was Fox, too, mm-hmm. which I believe yeah. was. They, they would have known years in advance. The prequels are coming out in 1999. Let's get in on this and, you know, go to space. Yeah, the tone of this, it feels very, it feels like a, like, like a live action movie. Um, it it feels a lot like Firefly, which um, probably is because Joss Whedon wrote it. But it's it's 
basically just it could easily be a live action movie with no changes to it. It's there's I, no talking raccoon. There's no or talking something. raccoon. I mean, there are there are weird creatures in it, okay. but it's mostly. I mean, it would be a space movie. It's not like, you know, like a austere drama, <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just more mature relationships. There's some more adult jokes. There's some, like, sexual humor. There's nudity. Oh, what? Uh, Matt Damon plays Kale Tucker, uh, and you, he is naked at one Wait, point. Wait, you see his butt? Yes, you do. Showing off his dong blue. Oh, my God. PG uh, right there. It's not frontal nudity. I mean, it, it is. <laughs> you just PG see his movie. erect penis. <laughs> and the For opening. five minutes. Bill, <laughs> like, how did the MPAA let that one slide? And yeah, it's definitely... It's soft. We'll let it fly. It's definitely Star Wars influence. Like, the opening scene is the Earth being destroyed. So again, there's some Don Bluth darkness. It starts with the main character as a child, and he, like, witnesses the destruction of Earth. And it's like, okay, like, I'm depressed. I I saw this in theaters, um, and really the only thing that stood out to me was the the animation. Um, Mm -hmm. And you see it a little, a very little bit in Anastasia, um, similar to when Beauty and the Beast came out, where you first saw the just the very beginnings of integrating 2D animation techniques with 3D models and backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and in Titan A, you really see it with like the space backgrounds and some kind of basic 3D modeling of the sci-fi elements. But it, yeah, it really wasn't that groundbreaking in in and of itself. No, like the animation now, like looks like kind of like a cheesy video game from yeah. the, mm-hmm. I yeah. guess the year two thousand. Um, so the movie is like totally fine. Like I enjoyed watching it in a way. I, I feel like I would have enjoyed watching it more if it was just a live action movie because there's a lot of action in the movie. Like it, it just it really does feel like and for, fi- an episode of Firefly. You said eighty five million dollars. It costs seventy five million. Yeah, for seventy five million dollars, I feel like. Any director like Guillermo del Toro or Alfonso Cuarón, like any of them, would have made in so much more. Yeah, you could have made this movie like live action. Could have made like hundred million in today. Well, but like, like could have yeah, made probably. so much more of this movie, like, and do such a better job of establishing that world and all. I, I don't understand why that had to be an animated film at all. No, I mean. I think it was an experiment, and I, I and don't think it worked. <laughs> and a failure. Yeah. I mean, I can see the logic behind, like, oh, like, boys love video games. Right. Let's do an animated movie that looks like they're video games. But dun, dun, they, dun, dun, dun. they didn't like it. <laughs> um, okay, so as with most Don Bluth stories that are horribly depressing most of the way through, there is a happy ending to this one. Uh-huh. So Don Bluth, uh, this <laughs> year started in Indiegogo to raise funds for a pitch presentation for mm. an adaptation of his Laserdisc video game called Dragon's Lair. So Don Bluth is back, you guys. Or- Wait, huh. I did not know that he had anything to do with Dragon's Lair. Well, you didn't know he was alive either. <laughs> Maybe it's that's why. <laughs> no, it's true. We've established that there's a basic factual deficiency on my part as to the Don Bluth uh, whereabouts or liveliness. Um, but Dragon's Lair is one of the most storied video games of all time. Is it? See, I had never heard of it. But yeah, he created it, like had everything to do with all of totally it, I believe. Totally did not know. Yeah. 
Can I just say how depressing it is that he has to have an Indiegogo? At it all? is. It is at really all. depressing. Um, so, and also there was like some controversy that he even did it because he's raising money for a pitch presentation. It's not for the actual movie. So it's like, this is something that will be shown to executives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mm-hmm. going to be shown. I mean, maybe it'll be shown to the public, but the main purpose of it is like to raise, I think he needs, you know, he needs many millions of dollars like that you couldn't get from a, an Indiegogo. Um, but yeah, so Dragon's Lair is, it's going to be traditionally animated. It's like a, you know, because he, he's still really passionate about that. I feel like Titan AE, like he started to go down like the CG route and then I'm guess I, I don't, I didn't read anything about this, but I'm guessing he was just like, nope, not for me. And maybe that's why he didn't, you know, make any more movies is he just saw the direction that animation was going and just wasn't interested because he really likes the hand-drawn stuff and the stuff that, you know, takes all that care and that personal touch. And I think he, you know, he was very vocal about not liking, you know, cost-cutting. And I I doubt that he liked a lot of the computer animation that was going on, even though. So this is, it's a very old-fashioned story, too. I mean, you probably know, but... you know, it's wizards and princesses and dragons, so... And brave knights. Um, and that's that's especially funny because... So Dragon's Lair was one of the first movies that had, like, CGI cutscenes. Where, like, you would kind of... It's like a uh, turn-based role-playing game. And so you make your kind of decisions and your knight character, like does the steps that you instructed to do. And then it has video cutscenes that show like what the ramifications of your decision are, you know, like when the monster crashes through the stained glass window in the cathedral, any of that stuff. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of ironic if anything that, that that was a Don Bluth thing to begin with, but it would be, it, it'd be very interesting to see like what his approach to doing that now would be. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get to see it. I don't think that there's any actual, he's probably making that cause he raised, um, way more than the money he was asking. He raised $630,000 to make this pitch presentation. So he's probably oh, wow. making that and pitching it. Can I ask, is Jisoo Shakespeare involved? I believe not. <laughs> you better get Jisoo. <laughs> wait, wait, which G Shakespeare? Jisoo. Oh, Jisoo. Okay, I thought you meant G. George Shakespeare. Oh, no, 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 Jisoo. No. Okay. Nope, nope, not G. Jonathan, not G. George. <laughs> and he also uh, runs a theater in Scottsdale, Arizona. So that's what? where Don Bluth is doing it right now. You guys, you guys, podcast field trip, Scottsdale, Arizona. Let's do it. What? theater because i'm literally in in phoenix a lot for it's work. uh it's a like a live theater it's not a movie theater oh yeah, well, yeah and i uh, he's hmm. appearing there you know he does is it called the blue thetorium uh yes it is that's exactly what it's called good guess. oh uh so on the whole what how do you guys think don bluth holds up i think I feel like I'm in a minority here. I think it mostly doesn't, but I but I appreciate a lot of his animation, and I probably would show a lot of his movies to my kids one day when I have kids, but for me as an adult watching them, I think I'm not really that much into them. Um, I think about the best of Don Bluth in the way that I think about the best of Disney's stuff, which is that... Um, the best of it is dated in some ways by the technology. It's dated by just the sheer amount of time that's passed since it was made. But what is timeless uh, carries through. The humanity of the stories that Don Bluth told carries through. The very um, 
adult human situations and especially negative situations the the concept of mortality and of loss and of grief um are things that i i feel really deeply are not addressed really at all in any meaningful way in mainstream cinema now and he dealt with it in a way that was both i feel like age appropriate for little tiny Seth who saw most of these movies, um, but that held really deep rewards for adult Seth who rewatched these movies. Um, I would be really fascinated to show this to kids now and see how, and see how it hit them um, just to see characters that again are in these um, situations and are in kind of these plot devices that, uh, I know I definitely didn't pick up on when I was a kid, but that now hold like a lot of layers of meaning that I know I wouldn't have been able to pick up on at the time when I first saw them. Um, so I, I really, it was it was great revisiting these movies and kind of rediscovering the things that I loved about them and adding kind of inflection points of of layers of meaning that I didn't pick up on before um, and. I think several of them still hold up now. I would definitely say that, like, for me, The Secret of Nim um, and and probably The Land Before Time are what hold up the best. Um, but, yeah, it would be really interesting to see uh, how someone who's a kid, like, growing up right now would watch movies like this and what they would take from it. Yeah, I kind of feel like they're almost like more interesting to discuss in like an hour long format of a podcast than they are necessarily to like throw, like I would throw on Aladdin to have a good time at home Mm -hmm. and just be like, Oh, I want to relax and watch this. I don't know that I would throw on any of these movies to like, be like, I'm going to kick back and like watch some dead parents and dog murderers. Like, (laughs) yeah, I think it's really been more interesting talking about these movies than watching them. Honestly, for the most part, I just, some songs are great, some moments are great, but like on the whole, I feel like I'm not gonna rush out and buy them. At the fast food restaurant. <laughs> Especially not at the fast food restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will say that I, especially like try, looking at the whole, his whole career, you know, overall, I really appreciated what he was trying to do. Because you can just look at Amer- an American tale, for example, and be like, oh, that's a little different. But when you see all these movies together and how they, represent voices of people that you don't usually see in children's entertainment and talk about things that you don't normally see or that are kind of just like glanced over by Disney like oh dead parents but it's okay we've got a you know a song over here like there's a cute bunny like don't don't think about that you know these really dwell on that and I think I do appreciate that like if I had kids would I show them these movies guess that I would but it might be at a slightly older age than I would show some of the Disney movies. So I guess collectively, do we think Land Before Time is kind of like the I think the, so. the, the I think so. one that holds up the best? I would say Secret of Nim is still my favorite. Okay. And what about like the like which of these do you think does I not hold up? I think the ones that we didn't even bother to watch well, for the podcast. Besides <laughs> those. Honestly. I would say you could mostly pass on Anastasia. There's some interesting things in it, but it just, like, if you're going to watch a princess kind of movie, like, just watch a Disney See, movie. See, I would just, I would say Titan A.E., even though I didn't watch it, but because at least Anastasia has good songs. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I could totally abandon Anastasia. 
And we'll just let just her like go. her family. Yep. <laughs> just let her exactly. Go. Like her by family. the way, that grandma is terrible. Like. They're getting Honestly. on the train, and like she doesn't even like she just gets on the train and she's like, "Oh, Anastasia didn't catch up. Oh well." <laughs> like seriously, <laughs> the most asshole grandma in history. Wow. And I mean, it's Angela Lansbury, but I, I guess she's Russian. She's very severe. <laughs> All right, so now we'll do a little bit of our playtime, and we have just a few uh, trivia questions uh, mm-hmm. based on Don Bluth. So the first one is Kirsten Dunst voiced young Anastasia's speaking voice. But which mean girl voiced the singing voice of young Anastasia? Was it Lindsay Lohan, Lacey Chabert, Amanda Seyfried, or Rachel McAdams? It was Lacey Chabert. I'm going to say it's Lacey Chabert. You guys looked on Wikipedia. No, I did not. Yes, I did. (laughs) Oh, I didn't. I've got some trivia for you. The singing voice of young Dimitri I went to USC with. (laughs) So I guess all of us did, actually. Yeah. He was in my my, uh, 190 class. What was his name? Glenn Walker. Oh, did he go to USC last year, like I did? When when we were young, Come on. yesterday. <laughs> Come on, keep up the ruse. We're young, vital people, <laughs> Becky. Guys, we're we're a hundred years old. Damn it, Becky! <laughs> <laughs> All right. And he was in. Uh, sorry, more more Glenn Walker oh, trivia is that he. We played, don't care about Glenn in, Walker. He was in Say Anything. He played a little boy in Say Anything with John Cusack, and then he played this younger singing voice to John Cusack's. Dimitri. Was he also in Con Air as young John Cusack? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, So American Tale ranks at number seven on the highest grossing movies in the mouse rat category on (laughs) Box Office Mojo. (laughs) Kudos to Box Office Mojo for having a mouse rat category. Secret of Nim is number 11. What is number one? Of of movies? Mouse rat movies. (laughs) Stuart Little. Wait. No, but that, I think that's number two. God oh, okay, it. so movies that are categorized as a mouth mouse slash <laughs> mouth rat, rat movie. Oh. That's a very different movie. Oh, man. Was I feel Wilford? like it's going to be super obvious. It is super obvious, and I think you should know it, because I think you love Ratatouille. this movie. Yes, oh, it is Ratatouille. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to get there. I was like, are there have, any rats in the Lion King? I have to win something eventually, damn it. So Anastasia ranks as number 12 in Amnesia movies. <laughs> What is number one? Oh, Memento. No. Wait, are we talking about box office? Box office. Oh, box office. I thought you just meant like critic. Uh, just my opinion. No, go again. Well, what's the number one amnesia, amnesia movie? Like really popular am- Was, was there popular. any amnesia in the Star Wars franchise? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who my father is. Oh, my oh God, I have you. no idea. I have no idea. So a hint is it's a big franchise. <laughs> With a star from Titan AE. Oh, God damn it. Matt Damon, Janine Garofalo, Drew Barrymore. Born Identity. It's Born Ultimatum, but I'll give it oh. to you because that's the right franchise. All right. The Born Ultimatum made more? What yeah. is this world? You know, they make more, you this know, is a as they go on. World. Land Before Time ranks as number nine in it's dinosaur Park. movies. It's Jurassic Park. <laughs> what are the top three? <laughs> It's Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park too. It's Lost, Lost World, Jurassic, World Park. Jurassic Park. And, Jurassic and, World. Um, and the the fucking new one, the Jurassic World. Yep, those are the three. Yeah. Doing a little dance. So our last uh, game is called What Kind of Critter Is It? <laughs> I'm going to name a character from a Don Bluth movie and you're going to tell me what kind of critter is it? It's a mouse. It's a mouse. Mouse. First, Mouse. Bible. Mouse. Yes. Anti-shrew. Uh, of shrew. Shrew. Yes. Tiger. Oh, cat. 
Yes. Oh, oh that was a trick. Dragon. Dragon. A mouse. Cat. Cat. <laughs> Secret of Nim. Uh, sharp tooth. Oh, T Rex. Carface. A dog. A dog. Henry. Oh. Winkler. <laughs> That's not a critter. Oh. Or is it? <laughs> Try telling Henry? Mrs. Winkler that. He's a dog. He's from an American Tale. Oh, he's okay. voiced by Christopher Plummer. Oh, he's an owl. No. <laughs> he's a bird. He's a bird. He's a pigeon. Oh, okay. Henri. Oh, okay. Yes. Henri, yeah. please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's How French. did you pronounce that? Henry. Because oh. I'm American. Uh, Puka. Uh, that's a dog. Yes. What? Jeremy. Oh, oh, uh, uh, crow. Yes. <laughs> Petrie. Oh, Petrie's a pterodactyl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Warranty rat. Oh, he's actually a, a cat. Okay. Yes. Yeah, trick yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a trick yeah. question. And you got it right. Okay, that's all <laughs> that's the games I obvious. have. Yay. You're full of surprises. Yes. I thoroughly enjoyed your games probably more than I did The Secret of Nim, so sorry. <laughs> Well, the secret of Nim is just a fun game, so yeah, that's the secret. Is, there... is that the secret? Was that the secret? No, I think it's um, about science, like poisoning animals and oh. stuff. You oh. know, lighthearted fare for children. Yes, that's all the bluthanasia we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. I would like to invite you to like our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/wwwyshow. You can tweet us on the Twitter machines at wwwyshow. You can email us at www.show at gmail.com with any suggestions for things that hit big in pop culture when we were growing up that you'd like to see us revisit now. And you can also help us defray the costs of running a podcast that you get entirely for free by donating to us at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash when we were young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. And I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky Bain. I have been and continue to be Chris. Bluth out. Bluthfully? Bluthfully yours. A new Bluth is dotting. Okay, just that <laughs> I've got a Bluth ache. <laughs> I've got a sweet Bluth. In memory of Ducky. Yep, yep, yep. Death, death, death. Guys, we give us cut all of this out. <laughs> <laughs>